This is Film Tank. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. to episode 210 of Film Tank. Alex Diekman here, along with Nick Cheney. Hey, how are you? I am well. How are you? Ah, not too bad. Okay. Not too bad. I'm glad you guys like each other. We do. I, also, too, oh, it's very weird. I, I don't know where that yet. voice came from. I don't know. What, my voice or your voice? What? what? I don't know. You. Oh, oh, the voice I just spoke, you mean. You just, whatever voice you were doing, I don't couldn't tell if it sounded more like, like a southern accent or like Terrence and Phillip, so I don't know. I was just doing my voice. Now that's, you're in a whole different... That's how I speak. Yeah. Now you sound like Andy Samberg, so I that's great. I didn't know talking was a crime. Never stop, never stop. Lock me up, judge, jury, and executioner. Judge, Judy, and executioner. <laughs> Okay. The other voice you hear that is not myself or Nick or Andy Samberg is actually our oh. friend Dan uh, joining us again for the first time in a while. Hello. Welcome back. Thank you. Long time listener, first time. You know what? Every time I do it, it sucks more. You're it's not just, it wasn't first funny the first time. But you know what? I'm going to be so close to the mic this time. I'm better gonna be. be eating, I'm going to be like fucking Elton John eating this mic. I mean to say mm-hmm. that Elton Uh-oh. John. No, wait a minute now. Mm. You filthy minded. Mm. People. I are mean, we? you went if you watch yourself. if you watch his performance at Live Aid, man, he's oh like boy. got it, like you know. Sure, that was the first time Dan I saw him. Dan is miming deep throating. No, a God dang it! Yeah. That's uh, that's slander. Well, it's just it's ironic because you had mentioned earlier that you had such an issue with the microphone when technically this is your day job. I know, as an audio engineer, which is why it's so pathetic. The last two times I was so quiet because I'm like, how how my mic skills just went out the window. I don't know. I was it's just a weird by you guys, a celebrity set up in the sense that we are literally just plotting down four mics on a stand. Like these are good it's, equipment, it's professional, but just on a circular table. Like it's, we are just making this work rather than. It's definitely, I will say, and I appreciate you saying that about it, it being pretty professional, mm-hmm. but it is definitely the amateur version of what professional would look like. But sure. I will say, um, you know, I think it's a pretty good setup, although um, when things go awry, whether it be someone starts talking a lot louder or someone is not facing the microphone, uh, it could go bad really quickly. That is <laughs> true. Uh, and also speaking of the fact that Dan is an audio engineer. Now that you're Ooh. here, I gave you a shout out before when you weren't here, but I'll give you a shout out in person oh, and say thank you very much, Dan, for mixing our new theme song, uh, especially with the repeated back and forth of like, can you do something to this and can you do something to that or whatever. Um, it sounds amazing. And the music that the track is 
literally uh, the backbone of and whatnot is a great little piece of music. Uh, so thank you to you and the uh, studio Apocalypse Cow. I mean, uh, everyone who's listened to it, uh, other than just myself and these guys, has has been a fan. And uh, oh, yeah, good, it, good. Thank you very much. I mean, it's uh, when I, when I heard it for the first time, I was just like, all right, because I mean, I was excited to show it to you because yeah. I had kind of worked. I mean, I said this before, but like I worked on just conceptualizing it and oh, yeah, you stealing it Dan's music because I was <laughs> sure. he very graciously was like, "Here, here's our files, and you can use any of our tracks." And right. I was like, "Oh, sweet!" So then I was like a kid in a candy store because I'm like, <laughs> "I can use any of these," and I'll start thinking of the clips and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So then to give it to Dan and for him to mix it, uh, when I set it down for you, I don't think you were expecting. I think something as I don't know good as it is because yeah. you know it, i'm used to doing like a garage band quality yeah. type stuff whereas it doesn't sound like that no it's uh it's nice to have at the front of all of our episodes so. thank you well i'm glad you guys chose that one it was a it was a fun track i was just telling nick today i'm like it was a very fun track like some some tracks we would record and write and we would spend days or weeks just like sweating blood on it and this one was like not like that it was just like yeah this is fun we didn't second guess ourselves uh, I mean, so I should say, actually, this is co-written uh, by my brother, Jeffrey Brooks, and uh, his wife, uh, Teresa Brooks. And a- actually, I would say the majority of it is probably Jeffrey. I think I only came in to help. I, I-, I helped track it, and then I kind of maybe helped some arranging later. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so it's very much just a fun little psychobilly thing we did. So I'm, I'm glad you guys like it. And it, I'm glad it's got it. a use, because I don't believe it was used for what it was originally written for. So, that's the well, break. Now, so. it has finally served its purpose. Yeah, it has. <laughs> it's come to fruition. Full circle. Yeah. So, uh, the film we're going to discuss on this episode is uh, the uh, foreign film. Technically, that's casting the super wide net. Um, <laughs> well, depending on who like you world are. world music. I mean, technically speaking, if we have a listener in South Korea, mm-hmm. um, this is not foreign. Right. So, it's really a matter of perspective. Sure. That's deep. Yeah, deep. That's, that's, that's true, though. That's, yep. <laughs> sure. So, before we dig into the South Korean film Parasite... Uh, which has gotten just glowing reviews from basically anyone who reviews film Mm -hmm. uh, and also just people who, in general, go see movies. Um, Before we do that, I'm going to spend a couple moments talking about a couple other films that are current right now. Um, Both the uh, update, but the sequel to The Shining, which is Dr. Sleep, mm-hmm. and also uh, the new film with Christian Bale and Matt Damon, Ford vs. Ferrari. The sequel to Freddy vs. Jason. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. In space. <laughs> in space. If only. That's good. They always go, the fourth one's always in space. You know mm-hmm. what i My friend Brandon, he's always like, dude, the fourth horror movie, it's always in space. Leprechaun 4 in space. <laughs> well, it took Jason 10. Yeah. True. Oof, boy, that, that 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 Jason X. Whew. It's amazing. That's, it's, that is we just rewatched opinion. this. Yeah. It's so I don't understand why you can't even fang, you know, uh, he false memory. He said it was memory. amazing. Yeah, he said, he's, he's sure. Said, yeah. You bet. So Oops. Ford vs. Ferrari, uh, myself and Nicholas went to go catch this film uh, last week. Got uh, us some primo release. seats. 
Yeah, I wasn't even going to go there, but you did that to yourself. <laughs> no, so. I'm, I'm putting myself on blast. Yeah. I uh, very mistakenly, for the first time maybe in our entire friendship, mm-hmm. bought the wrong tickets because I had bought the tickets to the previous night's showing. Same time, oh. s- same bat channel, same mm-hmm. theater. Um, but? But, yeah, it wasn't the right one. And we were just chilling in the lounge, having a beer, because we already had our tickets. So we really waited to the last moment. Uh, and thankfully, there were two seats in the very front row-ish. Um, on the corner. Of the on the theater. corner, yeah. yeah. But, yeah. At least they were recliners. Those are like, yeah, those are like my worst nightmares. It's, yeah. It's like, it, wasn't, it wasn't that bad. I was going to say, I've had worse. Oh, yeah. The, I, probably the Brooklyn? Brooklyn was awful, but I think yeah. for me, my personal, that would be my second worst. My personal, my first and personal worst is when I saw uh, Star Wars The Last Jedi for the second time in Minnesota with oh. friends of a show, uh, Sarah and yes. Andy, and he <laughs> he made a mistake, and he thought he <laughs> bought the back row. Ah. He did not. The yeah. screen was on the other side of the room. Well, isn't it all a matter of perspective, just like if you live that in South true. Korea? I mean, yeah. it's like it's one person's back is another person's <laughs> front. Mm. So yeah. we were dead center in the front row, God. and there should not have been a row in the row that we were in. And no, and those were recliner seats, and even reclining did, <laughs> did not help. Unless I like IKEA'd the shit out of it and like laid down when I shouldn't have and whatnot, but anyway. Yeah. So the annoying thing about Brooklyn, yes, is that we went to a early afternoon showing and yet we still. And that movie was not that popular, even though no. apparently Evanston, uh, where we saw it, if any, if you go to a, see any movie on Saturday, you're pretty much like, which I get, but, but... I like the like 11 a.m. showing. That's what fucked with me. That it was why. Like, I just assumed we were just going to stroll in and yeah, sit yeah. wherever we were wrong. Apparently, something about the Irish soul speaks to Evanston. That's right. You know? There were just a bunch of Saoirse Ronan fans mm-hmm. out there. Yeah. I've just learned how to finally say her name properly a few months ago. I know. It is It is one. Of, it does not look like Saoirse. No, so. it doesn't. Yeah. No, it, yeah. But Siobhan doesn't look like freaking Siobhan either. You ever see that name? Yeah. yeah. Siobhan Roy in the new uh, show, uh, Secession. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, that's the character name, not the Sarah Snook plays Siobhan. Oh, yeah. I love Sarah Snook. She's great, and she's that. one of the leads in her. Yep. Oh, yes. good Chris. man. Good things should happen to that gal. She is I agree. awesome. Great show. Yes. Uh, so James Mangold put out for verse Ferrari. Uh, he of Logan uh, and other films as well. Copland, which I like a lot. It's a great movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was very excited for this because, for a lot of reasons, I've actually been to the Le Mans racetrack uh, in the past when I went to France uh, in 2013. Um, cool. I really like Christian Bale. I think he's a great actor. Mm-hmm. And this was originally a Michael Mann film that he walked away from and James Mangold picked up the pieces. Still an executive producer. Yeah. So we saw this and it is getting very good reviews for the most part. Uh, and I will say I thought this was just okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought there were a lot of parts of it that made no sense to me. Probably the biggest issue I had with it is this film is called Four vs. Ferrari, and there is no rivalry really happening here. So really, because that's that's dominates the previews. Is, is I know. About yeah. Like, now you've got like Tracy. What you Letts see in the like, previews. Go, go out there and kick their ass. You know, whatever. All that happens in the first ten minutes. Oh, for Pete's sake. And then the rest is uh, just Christian Bale and Matt Damon, not even dicking around that much. Uh, like it's just them dealing internally with the politics of the workplace at Ford Motor Company. 
I oh, mean, that's, really? Yeah. That's pretty much what it is. Just yeah. as far as the rebelliousness of a yes man versus a person who knows their crafts, which does not sustain two and a half hours. No. Wow. I, I guys, I'm really. I haven't read any reviews, mm-hmm. I, but I've seen the preview, several previews. I'm really surprised. Yeah, because like that's very. I mean, usually I don't bitch about this, but this is re- that's really misleading. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you guys had no idea. Okay, I'm sorry. Go on. Uh, no, I, no. I, I, I was, uh, and the first, I think, twenty, twenty-five minutes, I think, are actually very good. Yeah. Because it does set up this idea of why Ford is somewhat floundering in these crazy ideas that people are just throwing off the wall to try to have them become more relevant in popular culture and this idea of going up against Ferrari and then they attempt to purchase Ferrari and that goes south and then they want to say fuck off Ferrari and get back at them and like it all sets up this really interesting premise and then it is like just goes into this sort of character study and also to the dynamics of the workplace and dealing with Josh Lucas's terrible boss character from Ford Um, and I, I don't just like, it really wasn't that bad. Like, I gave it a three out of five. I okay. thought it was a decent film. I thought it had some really solid comedic moments, between, especially between Damon and Christian Bale. And also, too, I thought some of the car racing scenes were actually very good, especially in the theater. Mm-hmm. However, I do think it's just not that great. It's definitely a film that I have not thought about at all since we went to go see it in the, in the theater. It's not a good. Scene. I'd agree. I thought it was not good, uh, not bad, but just just there and way too long. Um, I'm a James Mangold fan. Like mm-hmm. before Logan came out, I was already kind of a fanboy because mm-hmm. I'm one of the only people who liked The Wolverine before. Uh, the Wolverine, meaning the movie called The Wolverine. The one set in Japan. Yeah, I yeah. thought that was great. Um, but I also love Copland, Walk the Line, yep. Identity, mm-hmm. all those movies. Yep. So I've always been on that train, so to speak. Uh, the 310 to Yumas, <laughs> if you will. Actually, yeah, that's a really good remake. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. But um, this is the first time I was actually disappointed with one of his movies. And I just thought it was bland. And it made me... Like the sentiment I had when I left was that I wish Michael Mann had stayed on. <laughs> so yeah, I thought it was pretty poor. Yeah. Um, Can I ask one question? Yes. Did um, yeah. James Mangold did he write it as well? No, Don't it was so. um, okay because it was written by like three people. It kind of had uh, that kind of yeah. feel to it, but yeah. Well, it's just that. As far as I can remember, every film I've seen by him so far, he has either written entirely himself or co-written. He's I was going to say, he's usually, no, but this definitely felt work for hire, I think. Got it. And it showed. And I will say, I think one of the other big disappointments for me is this was a very wasted performance by John Bernthal, who mm-hmm. was actually quite good in yeah. the couple early scenes he was in, and then he's not relevant. And you really relevant. thought that there was going to be more from him, even yeah. from the ongoing. I really thought that the idea was, because we saw quite a bit of him in the beginning, and then he kept getting pushed down in the middle, that there was going to be some form of release by the end, because I thought that was the whole point of that. But nope, uh, he's mm-hmm. literally just there to watch, I guess. Uh, yeah, it's just no... You know, I, I like Tracy Letts in it because he's always great, but he could have gotten a little bit more because he's Tracy Letts, so he could have really taken off. And and his one big scene is actually the one of the worst scenes in the movie, um, in my opinion, where he does his whole comedy routine uh, in the car. Mm-hmm. Um, that oh, was kind of okay. beneath him, but <laughs> whatever. It's I, Tracy I, Letts. I mean, no, I know what you mean. Not so much that I don't think he should do broad comedy. It's just 
that in and of itself was cheap compared to what came in the movie. So mm-hmm. yeah, so, so yeah. Doctor Sleep. Uh, I have been wanting to go see this, but I'm not going to end up catching it in the theater. Yeah. Um, so I figured you wouldn't mind if I went without you. I didn't. I mean, at an abnormal time, and that was really. I was say you it saw it in, uh, in the in the in the morning, uh, late, late morning. I saw it. It was a nine fifty showing on a Sunday, Sunday night. night. Oh, it was on an evening. Oh, so you yeah. just didn't post it. I was gonna say I didn't post it until like midnight or something afterwards okay. or whatever. But me and Dan went. Right. Oh, okay, and I will say I am a fan of The Shining, but I am not like a super fan of either the film or the book, mm. as I've never read. Either book, so mm-hmm. I'll let you guys take it away. Yeah, I'll very briefly say that um, I was looking forward to it just to see it, and I tried to read the book of Doctor Sleep, and kind of gave up uh, after a hundred pages because it just didn't work for me. Um, I actually still was slightly hopeful because I thought that there was a good chance that what wasn't going to work in the book was maybe going to be better if it was just condensed. <laughs> sure. um, and so I was still looking forward to it. And I got to say, I, I watched it. And while I don't think it's particularly great, I had a great time watching it. And I thought that pretty much all of the beats worked, um, even if none of them were spectacular. And I, I thought the mm-hmm. continuation of Danny's story very much rang true and there were some really nice moments uh, of emotional catharsis as a reactionary piece to The Shining, both the book and the movie. Um, uh, And I can understand why people are maybe getting upset about the whole Rose the Hat storyline, but while that annoyed me in the book, it really didn't annoy me in the movie at all because we never spent that much time with uh, Rose the Hat, which is the Rebecca Ferguson's character. Mm -hmm. Um, And I thought in the movie it was pleasantly enough presented. I thought she did a good job, and I thought it was utilized well enough because she's more of a means to an end as to what she can extrapolate both from the character of Danny and the new character that he becomes friends with. Um, So she's more of a catalyst for their personal journey than she is a true villain, and I think that it worked because of that. So I will say that I actually had a lot of fun with it, and I'm kind of looking forward to watching it again. I think the best asset of it is definitely uh, Mike Flanagan's uh, visual uh, cues and the way he shoots this movie. I know he's not the DP itself, but he right. certainly cold from the the move the movie of The Shining and whatnot. So I know they are different kinds of films, uh, but they, since it is still recent, um, did you like this or it Chapter Two more? Well, I think here's what I'll say about that. I like it Chapter Two more because I like that the property of it more in general Mm -hmm. this is probably a better adaptation because it took a source material that doesn't quite work and it cut off fat that didn't need to be there and just drove it home and and it's a long movie so it's not like it like is a super super condemned Mm -hmm. but he streamlined the things that were kind of boring about the book without actually betraying the source text. And he shot it sumptuously. Um, There's an emotional catharsis there that is actually pretty well earned. Um, But if I'm going to spend time with characters, Mm -hmm. I'm probably going to always choose the gang and it, whether they're children or adults, Um, Mm. even if that is not a very good adaptation. And I I like that movie. Dan, I'm stepping on your dick here a little bit. No worries. But I do have another question. So big. (laughs) Um, that so cold and deep. Oh, What's your prior joke? Never mind. Go yep. No, no. That's, yep. You got it. Uh, so I will say um, one of the 
big things between Stephen King's The Shining and then the Stanley Kubrick film is the liberties that he took mm-hmm. uh, in changing this. So do you, and even though you didn't read the entire text, do you think there was at all an attempt to try to this get that same way vibe? more faithful yeah. to a source material mm-hmm. and way more in line with what you would think a Stephen King would write. Okay. So it definitely felt like a more faithful, but I don't think that was a bad decision. I don't know that Kubrick taking on, not he's dead, as so I mean this hypothetically, but I don't think. They could just make a CGI version of him to direct it. I, that's true, right. actually. Mm-hmm. But I don't think there's really enough in the mind of uh, Dr. Sleep for a director like uh, Stanley Kubrick to tackle so i think mike flanagan was actually the right choice because i he's a slightly more average director and last question because yep. i'm just curious yep. at this point mm-hmm. were there definite nods to stanley kubrick and his version of the shining in this the entire film? last 30 minutes is yeah. revisiting the movie basically not yeah. through flashbacks but through visual echoes and reckoning with the events that transpired back then versus what's emotionally happening right now in the physical space. From the film version or from the book version? From Kubrick's vision of what happened. Okay. I will say this. The biggest departure that Kubrick made plot-wise is that in the original book, The Shining, um, they blow up the Overlook Hotel at the end. Mm -hmm. Like They're like, we got to get out of here. No one should come back blow it up and everybody gets away except for Jack but like Dick Halloran doesn't die or anything like that mm. this takes the continuity of the movie instead of the book because it'd be kind of confusing to visually sure. you know continue but not whatever um, but it almost course corrects what's clearly Stephen King wished happened in the original movie yeah, and it just does it 30 years later. I don't even mean that specifically with plot points, but almost like it's both wish fulfillment but also cathartically emotional um, without actually betraying the movie that came before. Okay. So, sorry to speak a million words before okay. I pass it on to you. I Dan. was asking questions, so I was oh, that's right. What did you think, Dan? Uh, well, I mean, I don't have a ton to say. I think I liked it a little more. I think yeah. you gave it like three stars. In yeah. Your initial, I think I gave it three and a half. Um, I, I th- yeah, the last act, the, the third act, or well, maybe it's more like the fifth act. This is a longer film. It is. It is very much um, a scrupulous um, attempt to revisit visually not just in the sets, but also in the shots, uh, what Kubrick did. And I think, um, I imagine Stephen King's probably pretty happy with it um, because it does manage to do what's a pretty hard needle to thread, which is you got to, you know, because most people, they know the Kubrick version, but we also know that King was very unhappy with certain things. I mean, I, I remember Stephen King saying something that was probably true, although I still, I mean, I would give The Shining a five out of five. I mean, that's one of my favorite films and it's it's truly terrifying to me even now. Um, but I will say that King was right in the sense that it kind of goes from like in the book, from what I understand, the Jack Torrance character, he doesn't go mad like within five minutes, if you will. It's it's a much gra- more gradual process and it has a lot to do with his alcoholism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But in the film, it was very much like, OK, you know, I mean, literally, it's like Monday. 
Tuesday. Like Tuesday, yeah. it's like, wow, Jack's already nuts now. It's like, I mean, geez, those ghosts went to work fast, you know? Yeah. But so I think this and one. Kubrick did that because most of those passages in the book were pretty boring. Right. And, and I be, save it as someone who's read it. Oh, sure. And, and it would be very difficult to make those. I mean, unless you're Terrence Malick or somebody where you're going to rely a whole lot on internal monologue or whatever. Uh, and, you know, Kubrick's done that before, too. But, I mean, anyway, like in Clockwork Orange, there's a ton of narration there. But, yeah, I, I, I thought it was very well done. I thought it was a really good way to kind of square the circle. Um, and uh, it, it was something Nick and I were talking about when we were walking out. Because Nick and I have seen The Shining so many times, there were little clues. Um, it was interesting. For instance, they would show um, Danny Torrance when he's riding around on the little, you know, hot wheel, uh, whatever they tricycle, tricycle thing. And they were recreating it perfectly, like the steady cam shot, the sound, you know, because there's this huge thing where he'll be on the floor and it's like, and it's on the carpet, and it's on the the carpet, and it's beautifully done. Mm -hmm. And even the score is very similar in that regard. The setting, the set was near as I could tell, exactly the same. I mean, but it was shot just slightly differently. So if you you've seen The Shining a few times, like we have, it was kind of a little disconcerting in a cool way because it's like you're almost seeing it the camera a little lower now so it's almost danny's perspective or if danny was the cameraman following danny if you will so that made it just slightly so it's almost like you know you're having a dream where everything's familiar but not quite and that was very effective i thought and I was oh, going to sure. say, on that note, I'm mm-hmm. also very happy that Mike Flanagan did not go the route of de-aging technology because mm-hmm. we yes. see Jack Torrance and Wendy Torrance by uh, with new actors yes. doing impersonations in a good sense, mm-hmm. and it worked that much better in my opinion. Oh, absolutely. The casting was quite good. Um, I don't remember who was playing the Shelley Duvall character, but she no, was very good. She was. And the there is a although that blue robe did like half the battle. It for her. does, yeah. It's just the, you know, I mean, yeah, I know you see that robe and it's like, is that the only piece of clothing she has for God's sakes? Yeah. You know, no, seriously, you know, she's like running across the street. You're like, are you still wearing that goddamn robe? Anyway, <laughs> uh, but uh, but even though I think Henry Thomas plays a sort of phantom version of Jack Torrance and. It was very well done. He doesn't try to do the Jack voice. Yeah. You know, he doesn't, I mean, which would have just been horrid. Good. But he did it close enough, and he, he just, he had the mannerisms just right. And and I, I thought that was very good, and I really liked it. Sounds like Michael Fassbender playing Steve Jobs. Yeah. Where uh, very much, yeah. where it's not an impersonation that's perfect. It's not like, you know, mm-hmm. like when Anthony Hopkins plays Nixon, it, he doesn't look that much like him. And he doesn't sound exactly like him. But something about it captures mm-hmm. the man. You know what I mean? Sure. It, yeah. you know. And you get a sense that it's maybe how Danny remembers it, too. True. he's a child, so he doesn't really take into effect all the affectations. Oh, right. And that's a really good point. It's like, here we are, we're seeing this person who's a projection of his father. Uh, in much the same way that in The Shining, Jack Torrance is talking to this projection of this guy who who he thinks is the, you know, the bartender, but it turns out he's actually the guy who murdered his family before him, you know, the, the Grady character or whatever. Yeah. Um, and also Carl Lum- Lumpy? Lumpy? He's from, yeah. He was from Alias. He's really good in the show Alias. He was one of the best parts. He's really good as Halloran. Um, and he's, he's only in a few scenes, but it's, he's uncannily good in mm. that role. And again, it's not like an impersonation of Scatman Crothers. It's not like... You know what I mean? But he has just enough of the facial tics and the voice and the eyes. He just, he really nails it. So in that way, it was really scrupulously made. And I think in that way, I really liked it. 
The other thing I thought was interesting was the fact that the villains, particularly the Rose the Hat character, uh, Rebecca Ferguson doesn't play her as like kind of like your usual like, I don't know, you know, mustache twirling villain. Like, you know, it, it's like she's she's evil. She, the thing she does is evil enough that the rest of the time she can just act normal. You know, she's mm-hmm. like, oh, she's walking around the supermarket. She looks like just looks like some granola hippie gal mm-hmm. walking around with her, you know, list. And she doesn't like do any of the usual uh, affectations or histrionics, you know, you associate with villains mm-hmm. because she knows she's like, OK. You know, they're pretty evil. They're going around, you know, murdering children through torture. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, you know, you, you know, pretty you close have, to the bottom. You don't have to do much more work after that, yeah. you know. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, so that was good. And Jacob all, Tremblay, by the way, shows up as one of the victims, which I was, I don't know, I was very put mm. off because he's quote unquote a star. As far as child actors go, the book mm. of Henry really ruined his career. <laughs> so for him to randomly show up that as a uh, quote unquote piece. baseball boy, uh, oh, he was good too. I didn't realize good, that but was it was a, just so yeah. bizarre to me. Mm. Anyway, um, well, and also um, I should just say this because I'm a, I'm a big fan of Cliff Curtis, and I don't feel like he gets enough roles, but I think he's one of those like incredibly versatile guys. I remember he was in like Bringing Out the Dead and um, Three Kings the same year, oh, 1999, yeah. and it was like, oh, that's the same guy. It was one of those things where you know. Like um, oh geez, oh shoot, I can't think of her name right now. Um, uh, Andrea Riseborough, oh, one yeah. of those people oh, yeah. where it's like she's not doing a whole lot of makeup, but something about it, she's totally transformed, you know. And I feel like anyway, even though Chris, Cliff Curtis's role was just supporting character, he's just like, you know, steadfast good guy, best friend, dude, you know. But he did a great job, and I was like, yeah, good to see him doing something other than getting chased by zombies, you know. Mm. So, <laughs> so I'll say that too. Yeah. Yeah, so I think we both enjoyed it. I was going to say, you guys mm-hmm. are a fan. You've kind of sold me. And I'm I was going to say, it's worth a watch. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. That's the big thing. Maybe, oh, yeah. Maybe someday I'll check it movie out. movie like this, basically, if it's a failure, it would be embarrassing. So I was mostly just happy that it worked. Yeah, yeah. They, like I said, they really had to thread that needle perfectly. You know, it was like a tightrope walk where you're like, mm, okay. But they, they didn't falter. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Though I will say Heidi was really pissed that I went and saw it without her, which I didn't realize. She was wanting to see it, too. And I was like, oh, well, Nick gave me three options, and I just picked the one I thought you were least in. And no. So. What were the other two options, if you... If you uh, Jojo Rabbit. Okay. And what was the other? Motherless Brooklyn, Brooklyn, which, again, I'd like to see all three, but I think we thought Dr. Sleep was leaving the theaters first, so we decided to get that one first. Which I actually think Motherless Brooklyn left the theater already. Did so. it? Yeah. That's a shame, because yeah. it... I, I don't know much about it other than it's Ed Norton's kind of, you know, like personal project, passion mm-hmm. project. And it's based on a novel by this guy, Jonathan Lethem, who I've read some of his other stuff, which I really like. Mm-hmm. But that's about all I can say. Yeah, so, I don't I don't know much really about it either other than it was directed by Edward Norton. I know that some of his earlier directorial work sure. is... Um, like Keeping the Faith was his original. Yeah, his and debut. I've never... I don't think I've actually ever seen anything he directed, but he mm-hmm. definitely gives off a vibe to me of someone who's probably not best suited to be a film director. Well, he's known for being pretty difficult so i mean sometimes that can be perfect if you're a director because you're very exacting and everybody has to listen to you as opposed to when you're an actor and they're like all right just shut up i don't know i I feel like and again i've never seen his work so this is totally not fair but Mm. um like somebody um who was i thinking of the other day i was thinking of this person who i do not think is a very good director oh george ben affleck Oh, you don't like George Clooney uh, as a director? I don't think George Clooney is a very good director, to be totally honest with you. I kind of agree in the sense that I feel like all of his strengths are what he learned from others and not 
how to do it for himself, but how hmm. to repeat their success, like Soderbergh's. It'd be hard for me to think of um, a Soderbergh movie that's exactly, or not exactly, but really similar to like Good Night and Good Luck. I feel like that was a pretty really? original. Well, I don't know. I mean, he has done black and white, I suppose, like the Good German. Well, okay, well, if you take the trajectory of where oh, he, sure. whatever. Uh, what were they going to say? Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, his right. first feature, is right. basically Soderbergh in, in in hiding to the point where Matt Damon and Julia Roberts show up in cameo <laughs> roles. Uh, and uh, then, I do love that movie, though. As do yeah, I. I actually yeah. like his first two movies, being yeah, yeah, yeah. that, and, and I think it's because it's the most Soderbergh-esque and <laughs> True. whatnot. But I think actually Good Night and Good Luck kind of follows a... Uh, I would say Soderbergh's kind of exacting journalistic style. Um, okay, that's whether true. it's something traffic like traffic, even if it's mm. not globe spanning, but uh, you know, more insular than that. That's um, true. I think he learned those tricks. And then when he was like, "I'm going to do Leatherheads," and yeah, I never saw that one. Uh, I saw that in the theaters. Yeah, so. It was like he's done films that are they're he, never like awful. No, but, but he's they're, just not a director. They're just hmm. not the best versions of what they could be. Like. The Monuments Men could have been a very, very good sure. film, and I actually quite like it still, mm-hmm. but yet it is still like, oh boy, we should go save that art, because you know what? Nazis are bad. It's like, no. You know, you would think we wouldn't have to say Nazis are bad, and then here we are a couple of years later, and we're like, god damn, the Monument Men, they, they didn't go we, far enough in that. In the, way know, before it's time. Yeah, I know. They we, should have they been way them, preachier. We got the art back, and we hunt up the American flag to tell them to go fuck themselves. The only thing like, that would have eh. made the Monument sure. Men better is if like they go through the entire movie, and then they finally open up the crate, and they take the lid off, and they put it down, and finally... It's just George... dogs playing cards. Yeah, god damn it. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I didn't know you were going to say that. I was going to say dogs playing cards. God damn it. And he I just holds so it up. I'm so sorry. Mm-hmm. And he's like, we did it. <laughs> and then it just the cuts to an epitaph, like explaining the lives that they lived after that. Right, right. Just and like, like 250 soldiers died for this, <laughs> for dogs at cards. But like nobody speaks about it. Just, right. Just looking back, that's such a weird casting. Hugh Bonneville. Hugh that. Bonneville, Bill mm-hmm. Murray. John, John Goodman. Goodman. John Goodman. Bob Balaban. Balaban Matt Damon. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. yes. He's in it. And then... Uh, Fresh off uh, being in the artist, um, Jean oh. Dujardin oh, is in yeah. it, sure. and then he was in Wolf of Wall Street, and then he was gone. Never from seen Hollywood. Him again. <laughs> yeah. Yes, but he's so good in Wolf of Wall Street. That he scene is. with the subtitles, everybody is. Oh, you know, that's true. But I mean, that scene's one of my favorite standout moments. But <laughs> so I'm going to have to go ahead and disagree with you guys on the Clooney stuff because I really like. I mean, I agree, Monuments Men is is okay, but I really liked Ides March. Um, and um, he just uh, finished directing about half the episodes for Catch-22, which I have not seen yet, but it uh, looks yeah. really good. That's got, like, Hugh Laurie and a ton of people in it. It looks really good. And the Catch-22 is a novel I've read. It's really good. And I liked the movie with Alan Arkin back in the day, but this is like a six-part miniseries. I feel like they're going to really get the madness in its full all manner of madnesses will be, will fully, be fully allowed to go. So anyway, but yeah. Yeah, he the la, his last two films before doing some of the episodes of Catch Twenty Two uh, were The Monuments Men and Suburbicon, which no oh, that's right uh, that got universally I panned. I yeah. actually saw that in the theater. No, oh. and did yeah. you like it, Dan? I kind of yeah, I did. <laughs> honestly, it had enough twists that I was like, oh. I mean, like Oscar I don't think Isaac I would hate it, it because I was going to say Oscar Isaac and Matt Damon are in it, so it's uh-huh. like I'd be into it. But is Oscar Isaac done? It's really sad because he was like he on the cusp be. of superstardom, and well, and he's got 
He's got a couple things. He's going still right in now, Star he? Wars. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think post Star Wars will be the ultimate test. Right. Because I, I feel so. like maybe he thinks he has a little bit of freedom while he's doing Star Wars. But he was doing such good work for like a good like three to four years stretch. True. And then he got yeah, like a little bit do of that popularity. All the time. I know. Al Pacino. I mean, just saying like he can go do shit for not. <laughs> I'm not saying he'd do it. Oh, but she has been doing shit for 25 years. Well, yeah, but like he he also goes through waves as far as like. Well, okay, I don't know what. Yeah, besides the Irishman, what he's done recently. Say, name the last good Al Pacino performance. Palermo was awesome. Al Paterno? Is that Paterno? Yeah, Yeah. not not Palermo. Palermo, sorry. You like Paterno? Anyways, I'm just finishing the Oscar Isaac thought. Go ahead, go ahead. I was just, I've just been a huge fan for a while, and I feel like a lot of his recent work has been like, oh. Yeah. I feel like he's got something coming up, though, that's kind of big-ish. Besides Star Wars? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, uh, like I don't know. Maybe. That might I might be wrong. No idea. He, he, he's not, he doesn't actually have anything. Dan has just seen <laughs> the future, and he's something big. The coming. future! In 2022. In 2022, he makes his fabulous comeback. Very with good. robots. Oh, boy. Sorry. Tucson would Using be proud. science. I know. He Tucson and I are big fans of the transatlantic accent. I know he is. Yeah. I am a huge fan. And mm-hmm. whenever I say the word the future, I have to say it like, the future. The future. Yeah. You know, you have to. You know, That's so. okay. Unfortunately now, because Marvel's ruined to me, anytime I think of the future, I automatically think of the scene where they go to the... Uh, uh, in uh, the first Captain America where they go to the whatever the Howard Stark festival yes. it is. And I'm like, oh, that's what the future will always look like mm. in the 1940s. And I'm like, mm-hmm. fuck. Yeah. Damn it. Actually, got me. Martin Scorsese says he was right. Shit. Yeah. Actually, I'm going to say something really fast about this, but that is actually something I've been reading a lot about in the last year. It's something they call hauntology. And it's this feeling of nostalgia for a future that we never got. Like, you know, people always say, well, we should have jetpacks and flying cars. But I mean, there's a greater kind of melancholy uh, amongst a lot of us. Jetsons. Yeah. Like the Jetsons. Or, you know, like the Epcot world of tomorrow. Yeah. Kitchen of the future. Tomorrowland. Uh, Tomorrowland. I'm not going to get into that. Everyone's nostalgic view of 2015 and Back to the Future Part Two. Yeah, like a, Blade Runner's 2019. Well, that one. That's well. See, actually, there's a, there is a moment there in like 71, 72 where it goes from utopian to dystopian, and I'm like, well, what happened here? I don't. I guess Watergate. I don't know. But anyway, but yeah, it's actually something hauntology uh, by this guy uh, Mark Fisher, who's this absolutely fascinating uh, cultural critic. Uh, he did film and music reviews, and anyway, I, I just it's something. I, it was so cool when I finally found a name to go with this thing yeah. I've been thinking about for years and years. That is the truth. Best, yeah, no, that's prevalent though. Yeah, it's very haunting. It is. It is haunting. Yes, indeed. Speaking of haunting, that's a nice (laughs) transition into the film we are discussing, which is uh, Parasite, uh, the film that has just been released uh, this year, 2019, and is directed by Bong Joon-ho, who uh, previously directed a couple of films that are somewhat known, uh, including 2013's Snowpiercer, and the yes. film, a film that came out on Netflix in 2017 called Okja, oh, yeah. which I have not seen, but I've heard is quite good. Yeah, it is. It is. And uh, Jake Gyllenhaal has a fantastic supporting role in it. Oh. I just, just saying that much. I mean, it's like, it's, it's, it's a work of comic genius, in my opinion. So, oh. you know. So I'm going to say the names of the main uh, actors, but I am going Go to say them wrong, I am sure. So 
Um, I'm going to have a tough time just saying character names on this podcast, so I'm probably just going to have generalizations about the characters. So sure. that's probably not great. Poor but... father, rich father. Yep. Pretty Poor much. mother. The Kims and the Parks. So the film uh, stars uh, Kang Ho Song and then Sun Kyun Lee. Yo Jian Jo, Wu Seek Choi, and then also Hai Jin Jang, and Sodam Park. Actually, you did pretty good. I thought that I sounds think so. Like, yeah. Those sound like the names. I think so. It didn't sound super racist. I don't think so. That's good. <laughs> no. Yeah. So uh, the film surrounds. Now uh, do it as Mickey Rooney. <laughs> <laughs> and like we'll we'll like have a, we'll put in a gong sound effect at the end. I'm just I'm sorry. <laughs> All I can think, I, I, when you said Mickey Rooney, I don't know why, like my brain just immediately went to Andrew Dice Clay's uh, whole bit on um, uh, Asian Americans, and oh boy, is it racist. Oh, yes. So if you ever want to hear him talking about... Uh, Whoa. Hey! Hey! If you ever want to listen to him talking about going to... Uh, Which I don't know why yeah. you would. Well, if you ever want to listen to a horrendously racist bit... Uh, which he has lots of them, but the uh, bit about him going to see the uh, Asian tailor uh, to get yeah. his get to buy a suit is extraordinarily racist. So, anyways, wow. and I, I do just want to say really fast in defense that's of one the, of your favorite bits. Of the, <laughs> we, <laughs> yes, because I think we can all agree I'm pretty racist. But anyway, um, no. But I mean, I do want to say in defense of the late '80s, people were not having it even then. Like people, like he had fans, but people were like, "This is." So, I mean, yeah. you know. I know my dad was a huge Andrew Dice Clay fan. At Ooh. the same time, my mother thought he was just one of the worst deplorable people ever. Yeah. So, yeah. And not much has changed in the last 20 <laughs> something years. It's weird that he's had a weird comeback he as has. a serious actor and actually has not been terrible. No, yeah. Well, he hasn't said anything stupid. He hasn't opened his big yapper and said a bunch of stupid crap recently. He's isn't made he? a couple oh, comments here and there, but nothing. Uh, I will say compared to what he's known for. Oh yeah, I True. I think he's uh, I think he's read the landscape a bit. Well, I will say I do actually like uh, Ford Fairlane. Looking back, because they tamed a lot of the bullshit elements of him, and it's it's actually a decent movie. Uh, also, I love that scene in Tropic Thunder where they're sitting there and they're walking, and he's like, you know, so I saw Ford Fairlane. It's a pretty, you know, it's not bad for an hydrodized clay vehicle. And like, Robert Downey was like, what? Wait, were you talking to me this whole time? What the hell? You know, he's like, I've been listening to you for like 10 miles. <laughs> you know. So anyway, just put that out there. So um, Parasite surrounds an all-unemployed family as they take a peculiar interest in the wealthy and glamorous parks. Uh, they then integrate themselves into their lives and become entangled in an unexpected incident. Now, I am to be always coming through in the clutch. Actually, that's Phantom. not... It's not bad because it's not the worst. there was no spoilers. I mean, because I went in really as cold as I could, and I think I had read that, and I thought, okay, well. That's, yeah. You know. I'd actually not seen the trailer for this when I went to go see it. Nor so. did I. Yep. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't know who wants to go first, if we want to draw a straw, well, or someone just wants to like, grab the baton and go. There is one thing I want to ask you, and okay. if yeah. you want to cut this, it's fine. But I am curious, and I wish Tucson was here because I'd love to hear his opinion, too. Mm-hmm. Nick and I talked a little about this, but what are... You guys, as the hosts of Film Tang, what are your thoughts on the etiquette for choosing theater seats ahead of time, like mm. when you pay? Uh, for me, what happened was... This did come up, yes. Heidi and I went to the movies. It was very good. Uh, we, you know, chose our seats when we paid, and then, you know, a couple minutes later, we're walking, we're in the theater, and it happens that somebody is sitting in our exact seats. You know, there aren't many people in the theaters, maybe... 
a dozen people at the most. They're going to need to get up. Right. And so I was, well, okay. So I'm like, we're like, oh, we're not going to make a big freaking deal. We're just, we're, we'll just sit like in the seats. If like, it's a totally empty theater. It was pretty empty. But, you know, oh man, so I, I don't know. So we sat in like the two seats behind them, which is fine. And then um, during the previews, the gentleman who apparently had purchased the seat yeah. that I was in walked and up. And then you're that guy. Yes. And Heidi's like, and she said this loud enough for the people behind uh, below us to hear. She's like, great. Now we're the assholes. And, you know, which was good. I'm glad she did. But, but. They were probably too clueless to realize. So I asked Nick, and I'm curious what your thoughts are. And again, I, I wish Tucson was here because I'd love to hear his thoughts too. So Tucson's had it with theater etiquette. We had this discussion a couple weeks ago. He, <laughs> okay. he went on a rant the other day yeah, on Twitter. I saw uh, that as well. Something. Yeah, I forgot what it was. I don't blame him either. No. I've no. kind of had enough too. I don't mean it in a uh, pejorative, but mm -hmm. I told Dan that I'm maybe uh, autistically militant <laughs> when it comes to the fact that, in my opinion, there is no gray area because I cannot personally understand why people don't sit in their signed fucking seats to the point where I don't actually feel any guilt whatsoever when I kick somebody out of their seats. And Yeah, it's such a gray area for me, in all honesty, if the theater is completely empty. Okay, and I agree with you. Because if that's the case and there's no one else there and someone just happens to be sitting in the seat, if we're like, talking it is just not worth the thirty battle. seat theater. Yeah. And there is five or less people in the theater. Mm-hmm. I'm with you in that. I don't get okay. – I'm not actually that bad of a person to go up and say, oh, you're in my seat or whatever. Or someone's in, like, the wrong seat in yeah. the row, and they may have just honestly right, just right, made right. a mistake because they that know the numbers were on the left. That might have been what had happened because they were literally in the spot okay. we would be except so, – you know. But on the other side of the coin, if it's a full theater, like you're mm -hmm. going to or see – Or half full. Whatever. Mm -hmm. Like, but this has been prevalent in, like, going to see, like – Avengers Endgame, and it's like, oh, it's finally up. It's like, nope, you're going to need to fucking leave because mm -hmm. I bought these tickets two months ago and I, for these particular seats. Oh, I completely agree in that case. And yeah. I told Dan... Well, in, in almost every case, except for the theaters are completely empty. Right, and this theater was mostly empty. I mean, you got to understand yeah. the guy who, he kicked us out of our seats, and like I literally moved to the exact same seat a little to the right. It was yeah. it was on the left, mm -hmm. a little to the left, and it was on the right. So I mean, they were literally basically the exact same seats. They were both just a little. I just don't understand south. why people, because more often than not, people are sitting in seats that cause they don't care, not because they don't understand seating. I know sometimes they pretend to because they'll look at their ticket, but I call that most of that's bullshit. They're just trying to be quote unquote ignorantly polite. Um, sure. Unless they're over like 90 years old or whatever. <laughs> I'm just saying like I, I don't buy it at all. Um, but I told Dan the story that the inverse of that was when you and I went and saw Tag and when you went to the bathroom oh, right. <laughs> that was my big am I the asshole moment and mm. I don't really I decided that I don't care what anybody else thinks because I don't care. Mm -hmm. But basically that was a full theater we were sitting down. We had two seats in the very back row in the center. I was mm -hmm. excited. The movie had already started. That's right. the previews. The film had started. The I film remember had saying started. That. Mm -hmm. And these uh, party of four came in. They had the two seats to the left and the two seats to the right. And the party of four was a mother, father, and what I believe to be a child and their maybe partner in high school. Because they didn't seem like they were brother and sister. They were kind of weirdly Yeah, I would estranged. say they were, they were definitely teenagers. Yeah, they were definitely teenagers, though. And 
it was funny because like I had a weird Terminator slash RoboCop moment where in the split second she asked because she came up and she goes, "Oh, we have these two seats and those two seats. Could you move two seats over? Yeah, so we could sit all four together. Yeah." In the split second she asked me that, I took three things into account, and after I took those three things, I just flat out said no, which is that a there's a party of four that split into two groups, which means that nobody's alone. B, that the quote-unquote children of the group are in high school, which means they are old enough to sit by themselves. Mm -hmm. And C, you are asking this after you have purchased tickets, which means you agreed to this when you purchased them, and you're asking me after the movie has already begun. I don't owe you anything. Sit the fuck down. I'm sorry. I just And I don't even care that she asked. I care when when people ask, and then they get upset because you somehow owe them something you don't. Because if you want to ask, because you're just going to see, like, oh, maybe this. But you, if you ask with the intention of, like, well, if I ask, they're going to feel like an asshole if they don't move, then you are the asshole. Because you essentially didn't ask because you think it's right. You ask knowing that you want to put me in an awkward position so that I either have to say no and feel bad about myself or I. Yeah. Because she gave me a, like, really? I don't. It's like, you're still standing in the way and I'm trying to watch this movie. Uh. I feel like it's hard because if an, I went to the bathroom, no, no, this is an exercise. Mm-hmm. If I went to the bathroom and you were there and she asked you and I don't carry the way, what would your answer have been? Um, to be totally honest with you, I probably would say that, uh, it doesn't bother me, but I'm not the Which only person fair. here. So uh, I would need f- to wait for my friend to come back because I'm not making that choice because it, it, doesn't really affect me, but I also don't want to be the. If you had moved, it's not like I would have been like, "Oh, Alex, we are yeah. we're we're taking those seats back or anything like that." <laughs> um, but because I felt like, at least in that situation, like he's in the bathroom and I'm the only person here to answer, I'm gonna hold strong. The problem is, is that, and this is such a deeper societal issue that's gonna could. We just go on a whole different type of podcast to discuss. Well, I mean, it does highlight a class divide. <laughs> Much like Parasite <laughs> or Snow. Well, it doesn't really highlight a no. No. class divide we're at all. Sh- we, we we're, all shoehorn it. we're all purchasing the exact same priced seats here. So. Yeah, um, right. <sighs> but not all seats are the same. I should say that, by the well, way. No. I mean, Heidi always makes fun of me for this, but I'm like, no, it's true. I want to be in the center. You know, she's like, well, it doesn't oh, matter. Man. And I'm like, oh, really? You think Francis Ford Coppola's like, just sit me where you want. I only, you know, labored over this fucking movie for five years in the jungles of the field. No, that's fine. Sit wherever you want. It's so, funny you, you know. say that <laughs> mm-hmm. because in all honesty, I'm surprised we haven't gotten there yet. Uh, in term- you mean like uh, tiered pricing? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, I'm surprised too, actually. Well, it's almost like the and, and you, it, neutrality. It would, it would obviously depend. <laughs> In a way, I mean, it would obviously totally depend on the expected crowd of a theater. But I'm surprised there's not some algorithm out there that says like this ticket should be worth this much for this showing. Indeed, actually, no. I think um, I think we're not terribly far off from that. Sadly, true. I would say the only reason we're not terribly far off from that is because theaters are definitely afraid that people are just going to stop coming one day. You know what they should do, though? If they do that direction, then they need to do both. They need to 
if they're going to do that, like raise for this, whatever, they also have to go the opposite direction. And like, if there's like a seat open between two, like that should be a $2 seat. Right. I'm just saying like a single seat and because people do that all the time. Like, and that might make me go, you know what? I'm going to go see this shitty movie and I'm very awkwardly going to sit right in between this, you know, party of two well, and party of three for well, two bucks. Well, so well, like you goddamn cheap ass. Well, while we're talking about it, I kind of think that in that same direction, it kind of like, you know, some certain websites do if like hotel rooms are just unsold and are just going to sit there unoccupied. Right. Sure. If you're just like, there's an app where there's going to be 80 seats that go unsold for the, I don't know, nine o'clock Charlie's Angels. And Which would never happen. <laughs> no. And you just, it's a race to the bottom of how much those are going to cost. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, you'd get a lot more people in a theater that's just... I bet. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting point. So, anyways, yeah, Parasite. Uh, so, yeah, so the, but the only reason I asked that was because you had mentioned you had kind of said... You would ask the Twitterverse, and they were like, you inconsiderate jerk. Like, yeah. you, you said they were like, that you dogpiled. No, I was I think very much in the wrong uh, to the world that I asked. I will say... I don't care. And, th- and this is... Yeah, exactly. This, but you don't... Oh. But just to really quickly say, yeah. I know for a fact most of them don't go to the theater. Yeah. Okay, so I will say... Then they have no reason to even respond. They shouldn't um, even say anything. As someone who has been in lots of theaters with just regular, general, everyday audiences of people, and I don't mean to say this is a pejorative necessarily, yeah. but most of my theater-going experience is just with whoever the fuck shows up to see the movie that I'm seeing, whatever... Um, boy, there really is very few things in this world than seeing a theater with a bunch of people who are really into seeing that movie. Oh, I couldn't agree more. Who want to be there to see it? I I agree. I always say, you know, I I try to go opening night when it's a a film that I think is going to be pretty packed. Mm Because, you know, the people, they laugh harder, they, like, gasp when shit happens, and sometimes they even applaud at the end. And, and, you know, like, like when I went and saw Get Out opening night, Mm -hmm. you know, that was fantastic. And it was packed. You know, I mean, I and it's not they're not even necessarily films that I or like sure the kind of films I want to see. But just the memory of when myself and Nick went to the Sundance Film Festival oh, in yeah. 2016, like that's just a whole shitload of people who just love seeing independent film. Yeah. Right. And they are like into whatever movie you're seeing. I mean, there a lot are, of them we found out don't even know what they're going to see yeah. like in that screening because really? I, maybe I just did too much homework, but like every time I was in line for something, I knew exactly like what it was, what the log line was, you know, whatever. Cause that's the reason why I was there was cause it sounded good or whatever. But like half the time we'd strike up a conversation with whoever was next to us. They're like, Oh, I don't even know what this one is. Oh wow. That's really going in cold, but <laughs> I've never done that before. <laughs> I mean, in reality though, you will never be in a, thousand seat theater getting to laugh at the most at the funniest parts of love and friendship in yeah. any other scenario yeah. true where we live in now and, and like, that's still a really funny movie did have that experience uh in sundance but then in contrast with going to see at whatever theater we mm. did when it was around here where yeah. certainly people were kind of laughing but a much different that was vibe. Night and day <laughs> that's interesting no that's very true um uh, well, yeah, uh, but I mean, honestly, when I again, when, you know, when I went and saw Parasite, mm-hmm. uh, uh, there were only a few people in the theater, but we happened to be with some people who were really on its wavelength and really laughed. I mean, 
to the point where there was a part where I actually just go, oh, come on, like really loud. Nobody minded because it was just so funny. You know what I mean? The 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 the, the shocks and the humor were really good. Would yeah. you say, Alex, at our screening of Parasite, that you and I were probably the only ones who saw this as a very funny comedy? Oh, yeah. 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 I think I don't me, necessarily think everybody disliked it. I know I just like out and out belly laughed at a couple of moments, and well, there are moments that are meant to be that. But yeah, in but, my oh, opinion, yeah. I'm absolutely certain there, that. it's it's tough because this is one of those films that people could say, "Oh, this got really good reviews. I'll go see that," and then people mm-hmm. are just like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, yeah. that's just such a weird. Although. Yeah, I mean, God, we just went and saw something where somebody walked out. Oh, was it the lighthouse? Yep. Where someone walked out after seven minutes? Or yeah, well, like we were the only people wow. in there except yeah. for that one dude. Yeah. And he actually stayed for a long time just to walk out. Like, he didn't walk out at the very end. But if you sit through an hour of it, and it's a two-hour movie, I think, yeah. I don't know why you would have made it 60 minutes only not to watch the rest of it. Yeah, it's like, that's the straw I can that understand. broke the camel's back. That's yeah, it. like, walking out of the first 10 to 20, because you're like, okay, sure. this is not doing anything that's clearly going to whatever. But right. no, Although, obviously, we in the past have had the opposite effect, too, where you're in the theater with a whole group of people who are going in a different direction than you sure. would be, and it's yeah. like... This is so uncomfortable. Uh, like the one dude who was just really thrilled that they were finally hanging uh, what's-her-name at the end of The Hateful Eight. Oh, and it yeah. was like, oh, boy. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Jennifer Jason Lee. They were yeah. cheering that on. What the heck? Like a frat boy and whatnot. Yeah. It was really creepy and uncomfortable. I remember Scorsese talking about going to see Taxi Driver in New York. And he and, said that yeah, people, during the shootout, he said there were people who were like, yeah. And he's like, that is exactly not what I was right, trying to bring across. He's like, this isn't the wild bunch. Yeah. He's like, you know, that's an exciting ending. This was meant to be, like, disturbing. Yeah. You know, which mm-hmm. most people, I think, get that. But, I yeah. will say... Hopefully. Before we start talking about Parasite, just because we're on the topic, my favorite walkout story are the people that walked out of the movie, the John Le Carré adaptation of, uh, what is it, A Most Wanted Man? Was Philip oh, Seymour yeah. Hoffman? Because people watched the entire movie, except for literally the last five minutes, then walked out and then missed the entire emotional... Like, I'm oh, not yeah. saying I can't understand why they may not have liked the movie, but... They walked out, and clearly the thing that they wanted to happen happened in the last five minutes that they missed, which I just thought was hilarious. And it that wasn't like a funny. couple. It was like seven to nine people decided. Like when one couple got up, then more, a few oh, wow. more walked out. And then all of a sudden, there's that bravado, bravura uh, scene. It's been a long time since I've had a good mess walk out of a movie. I, that was the most I've ever seen except for uh, The Tree of Life. And that, <laughs> that movie just makes sense. Well, you know, how yeah. old, how early on do they leave? Because I mean, there's like dinosaurs. Literally and... every twenty minutes, like there would just be like someone just oh, waterfalls. Like, of yeah, people. just like wow. you know. Obviously, the biggest concentration was the creation sequence, but sure. I'm pretty sure there was at least at every twenty to forty minute interval at least two people. Walking now that out. was possibly. Because there were large religious groups that went to that that yeah. just had had enough. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. oh, oh, they, they weren't like, oh, God damn, Jessica you... Chastain and her butterfly. That's yeah. that's it. I'm yeah. leaving. You that, hear that, about that, it and they're like, oh, it. this is a spiritual film or whatever. Uh, but, and it I is mean, that. It no, is, I'm, I'm, but, but it's they, not what they, they were. were not feeling the, it. Where's Kirk Cameron? Yeah, it's it's not uh, God's Not Dead Part 2. Yeah. You know? No, he's very much alive in that movie. Oh, yeah. yeah. The yeah. only uh, film that I've ever, is, at least recently, that I've really experienced, this is what, 
eight years ago now. But David Fincher's uh, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, uh, after the rape scene, people oh. were not pleased. Oh, boy, they missed the payoff, though. Because when she comes back, it's like... I hope they oh, never the... see the Swedish version. Why oh, not, right? <laughs> Whoosh. These people never go see a Lars von Trier film. Oh, my God. Yeah, talk <laughs> about a guy who's... <laughs> Actually, I kind of do, too. You get what you do. Now, I will say one thing really fast. When people walk out of movies... I mean, in, I'm going to um, say something really fast. Okay, fine. But I'm going to be even faster. I'm going to say it really fast. But when people walk out of movies at uh, film festivals, because people always talk about, oh, at Cannes, this film, you know, all these people walked out. I'm like, yeah, but that's... That's because they were going to. They were like, you know, I'm not going to waste my time. People with this movie. are I'm doing. Go see another pe- movie people that's are literally doing that because they think they're supposed to at this point. Yeah, they think they're supposed to, but there is something to what Dan said, which is if you plan it so that you basically could go see this movie or could go see that movie, I could see if you truly hate it and you still have a half hour before the other right. movie starts. Yeah, you're like, all right. you could. I, I just, I would never do that because I think I would still just be like, nope, this is the movie I chose to see, so I'm watching it. Or, I mean, mm-hmm. you could have. Um, like but you don't do that at a megaplex. You don't no. go to see Dirty Mom, Dirty Moms, <laughs> Dirty Moms. I was going to say Bad Moms or Bad Moms uh, Three, something dirty else. Moms. Dirty Moms. Anyway, dirty. I kind of want to see Dirty Moms. They're actually. Dirty little moms, and then walk out and be like, "Okay, no, we're gonna go see Daddy's Home." Like <laughs> part two. Uh, no, I um I do remember pretty well, somewhat high profile. Uh, of people walking out of Swiss Army Man because oh, they yeah. thought that was a serious film, oh, and then yeah. they watched it and they're like, "What is this?" Well, that was at Sundance, yes. Yeah, and that's, okay. so there was just no Which real buzz about it's very it. Very stupid, it was, but it, was, it makes sense. It was its premiere, and people saw it. Have you ever seen it or not? I have not, but okay. I mean, I've seen interviews. I, I remember seeing an interview with Daniel Radcliffe. Uh, promoting it and he's like so there's a lot of flatulence in this movie there's a lot of farting he's like it's very heartwarming and it's kind of transcendent but there's a lot of farting too and i'm like okay well he prepared me you know fair enough uh i'm sure i'll see it eventually a group of people who went to go see that at the the premiere obviously were not aware (laughs) of exactly what it was going to be and they were displeased and that's where the idea what i said earlier about sundance like homework comes into play because right i knew about that because we were in week two so week two replays every movie that showed in week one, which means that uh, there is no more surprises. I mean, there is in the sense that not like people are going around spoiling everything. Sure. But you get impressions. So the idea that people That's just had no idea. necessarily totally true. We somehow, even though we were in the second week, got to go see the premiere of Frank and Lola. That's because we saw it the night of that we were there. Like the first night we were there. I know. Well, I mean, that was the last premiere, I think, of the entire... Yeah. Oh, before it ran the over rest. the But it's not like, I guess what I'm saying is, like, every film does in its entirety play in the first two days. And I would say 99... Re- well, because it's an 11-day festival, and it's yeah. like 5 and 5, with the last day being the awards. So you're saying we just I'm kind saying of... I'm saying 99% yeah. of the films play in the first, first five days and yeah. the second five days, yeah. like... And we just kind times. of ruined that. So that's what I meant ground. as far as, it's like, that's why you only have to go to five of those days and yeah. not to ten days, cause, right. unless you really want to see more and more. So, but, true. We should yeah. talk about Parasite. Absolutely. What's that? Okay. So, who wants to Who's go first? It? We talked about I have a etiquette. lot that I want to talk about, but I want you guys, one of you guys to go first. You want one of us to go first? I, I think so, because I think you'll give a better summary. So, I will go first, okay. there if you that's go. okay. Yeah. Um, I knew next to nothing about this film. And 
I will say that my favorite uh, foreign film from last year, or my second favorite foreign film from <laughs> last year, I almost, almost did it again. Did it again. My favorite foreign film is Roma from last year. Oh yeah. But my second favorite foreign film was uh, film Shoplifters. Yes. Um, yeah, I haven't seen it yet. Oh, I great. need to. Very good. Uh, Would make th- a good double bill with this. I mm-hmm. actually almost said we should watch that tonight, but then I thought you guys have already seen it, so never mind. Oh. Yeah, because I haven't seen it yet. I mean, it's on my list. Of, it's very good. I have and a list in my wallet of movies I want to watch. With something you guys. to consider. So, yeah. so anyways, uh, there are definitely a lot of similarities in the first act of this film to that <clears> film. <throat> um, although that film has a much different tone, I would say, uh, especially as the, this film wears on. Um, but I, uh, after watching the beginning of this and really getting on the wavelength of what exactly this was doing, uh, I was very interested in this idea of this family who is basically grifting their way into this household. And I kind of caught on, I don't know, probably about like 40 minutes in. I'm like, they're going to try to live here eventually. <laughs> yeah. And right. Somehow get rid of that other family. <laughs> so was that their aim? I, I, I think mean, that's a conversation to have later on. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 Definitely think that it was in the plans, even if it never was realistic. But most of what had happened up to this point was probably not very realistic. <laughs> so, uh, at any rate, uh, so that being said, and I'm kind of going all over the place here a little bit, but I love no the first 30 minutes of this film, uh, specifically this idea of the one passing off to the other Mm. and it always just being this word of mouth. Oh, I kind of heard of this person and it like totally checked out, especially from afar. You have this family that's definitely played off as not having everything together in terms of their very segmented lives that they live. Right. Um, And just a lot of the moments that happen in the first 30 to 40 minutes of this film, I just thought, were pretty fantastic for what that is, and it's little self-contained bubble of the family just infiltrating this household yep. and becoming part of the service of this, which I think in its own film, if it was just this short film, is pretty fascinating without the rest that follows right. after. Yeah, the first act in itself is really tight and very well paced, and, and you know what I mean, and, and really yeah. fabulously acted and edited. You know? and, and some of the, whether it's the relationship between um, the son who goes there and becomes the math tutor, or sorry, the English tutor, I, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, um, I saw the movie, was three weeks ago now, or two weeks ago, or whatever, so it's not mm-hmm. super fresh. Hey, no worries. He's the English tutor, math tutor, shit. Uh, and English shooter. No, it is English shooter. English shooter. Okay. Yeah. I'm getting all mixed up. Yeah, because he's like, his friend's like, oh, your English is as good as anybody that I know. And I love uh, later on in the film when he gives the exact same line back to his family that his friend said to him, where, oh, I'm going to wait until she, you know, is out and then I'm going to (laughs) officially, you know, make it official and whatever. Um, but you get the super awkward first scene with her where they just start making out. Uh, and then you have the introduction of the rest of the family into this. Um, and I thought the sister and her relationship with the son was actually, for me, the most fascinating part of the early aspect of the film. Because this idea that she is playing off of what the mother is telling her about this event that has happened with the child... Yeah. And then also including in just the shit she read on the internet about this is what this means. And he's actually really fucked up. <laughs> mm-hmm. But 
at the same time, too, like clearly there are things going on with it, and he's not like Danny Torrance or something like that. But at the same no, time, like the kid actually does have a lot of yeah. a lot of probably underlying issues that no one is really caring about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, true, true. I, I will say that I um, I think I said to you, um, I said he was being spoiled, but he wasn't spoiled yet. He was a pretty normal kid, I'd say, when we see him. I mean, you know, he's what, five, six maybe? Yeah. So um, he, he didn't seem like he had become an egocentric crazy like the way that somebody does when the family revolves around you. You know what I mean? Yeah, right. But, so, but after that, we have the father, when he gets introduced, that's when we really start to pick up the class division that is being oh, yeah. threaded throughout this film. Um, and you're almost introduced to the family members of the rich family in order of who is most, uh, shall we say, uh, distant from the class divide division in and of itself. I That's think. a good point. Um, with the, the father being the most extreme example, not to say that he's blunt, because obviously some of his affectations are actually kind of subtle, right. but he's the one who I think is the most hardwired into him that there is a divide, and you, as he talks about, you do not cross the line. Right, <laughs> right. He's obsessed with that. He's like, well, why did he have to cross the line like that? You know. So one thing I will say that I think about this film is actually very exceptional is that this film I think is actually pretty, pretty clear about what its message is. But yet at the same time, I feel like it feels so authentic with the characters that it totally feels pretty normal and like nothing's really wrong at all. I mean, this family is there well off and whatever, but they're not really, for the most part, harming anybody. Uh, Mm -hmm. Until you peel back the onion and find out that, in fact, I mean, they're not physically harming but just small little moments and comments that they make of showing um that they are more well off and better than uh their service counterparts is their success is literally at the expense yep of what's lying in their foundation yep yeah nick you referred to it the other day as uh, microaggressions yeah And, and, and that was a really good way to show the condescension through little things. Yeah. Uh, but I will say um, the first act I thought was absolutely fantastic. The second act is where this film really hits its slapstick gold, I would mm-hmm. say, and becomes just honestly a almost Benny Hill hilarious comedy <laughs> at moments. Yeah, I, I mean, felt like it was just really fast. I, I felt like it was almost like a Blake Edwards film, like a Pink Panther or a Skin Deep. Or like um, this, the funniest scene in, in the history of movies is in this Marx Brothers movie, um, A Night at the Opera. That objectively speaking, I'm just saying it's the best. But it's it's very much in keeping with that. And I thought, God, this is like, this is farcical. I, I, I will say um, we do see early on in the first act when they are infiltrating and trying to get the maid out, which is very interesting that <laughs> we've got to get the other help out because they'll know. Um <laughs> So she's allergic to which fruit again? Uh, peaches. 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 Okay. Um, and just the like small little part of it, and then uh, this idea that she has um, tuberculosis. Mm. Yes. Uh, that scene was so over the top when they like show. It almost becomes bl- like a Soderbergh movie, in the way that these characters intricately superimpose their objective. Out in the wild, 
with these contrivances, like the taking the photo of like, oh, look at, you know, whatever. But right. the, the scene when right. they get the maid fired and I feel uh, like the hot that, sauce, the hot sauce that is supposed to be the blood. I feel like that scene plays off of some stereotypes of just the like facial actions of that, which mm-hmm. ends up being just comedic, comedic gold because oh, yeah. you have him pointing and being like, oh, and then the mother being like, oh. Oh, yeah, she practically faints. I know. Uh, um, uh, And then there is probably, I thought, the funniest comedic payoff I've seen in quite a while. Later on um, in the second act, at the very end of it, when the, like, big brawl is happening Mm -hmm. uh, in the middle of the family room. And, like, the daughter literally goes and gets the bag of peaches (laughs) and just dumps it on her. Yes. I mean, that is just so fucking heartless and at the Mm -hmm. same time so hilarious. It, um, it was the perfect thing to do at that time. If you wanted to neutralize her, oh, you, it, you had to you just pour you know pour that bag of peaches on her. <laughs> you know that is just like I would have never thought of that, and that, yeah, that was just so fucking hysterical. <laughs> um, and then the other hilarious moment is when the mother kicks the maid down the stairs. Yeah, that's the one that I laughed. Right, at. like, <laughs> and like, it's funny because both of those, both the peaches moment and the kicking her down the stairs, have like such awful gravitas later mm-hmm. you're like oh my god because it's like when you hear her hit that wall you're like oh that ain't good yeah you know but at the time it's really funny you know? yeah so. and and that in that sort of middle scene or middle uh part of this film where we are seeing all of that happening and mm-hmm. seeing the family enjoying this lifestyle and living here and the family's out of town we're just gonna make terrible decisions and get shit-faced in this house and just not give a fuck. I think that moment is actually what makes the whole movie for me. Okay. Um, I guess I'm kind of segueing into some initial thoughts. I will, if so I can... So please go first and then I'll... Okay. Yeah. So if I can just... Uh, yeah. And we'll talk, I'm sure, pretty extensively about the last 20 minutes or so of this sure. film. Um, because obviously that's where the big payoffs are for everything that happens Fireworks before Fireworks factory. Yeah. Um, however, I will say all of the moments that happened throughout this film, uh, I think was such a really great thing to say about how good of a work this is. All of the moments that happened throughout this film before the finale really do work on their own mm-hmm. and actually land, either, whether they be for a dramatic effect or for comedic effect, or just for creating this thought-provoking um, just study into class divide uh, amongst people in modern-day societies. Um, I mean, the fact that you literally have their house get ruined by a river of shit is just incredible. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, the the party at the end, uh, which uh, everything just explodes at this party um and and it's just uh everything in the last 40 minutes of this feature are just it just lands perfectly and even though i didn't think this was a perfect film for me um i think this is just exceptional work from start to finish that you know this 
he's done like Snowpiercer is a very good film. Oh yeah, I love that film. And and you know, and I, and I love all. Basically, I've seen everything but his first film. Yeah, and, and I would say each one of them is pretty masterful on its own level. And I mean, just talk about class divide in Snowpiercer. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the entirety of the film. Is well, like absolutely moving through the different. Well, levels and of the I train. said to Dan, I said it's funny that uh, he went from portraying it horizontally to vertically. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, Thursday, which I. I find it very funny, actually. But yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. so now the, the really good work here. Super, um, I would say, definitely under the surface, but definitely visible horror elements that are happening throughout this film that are yeah. just landing pretty fantastically. You said horror elements. Yeah, yeah, yeah I totally. Agree. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and just a lot of like terrible. I mean, this is. And I mean, it's a much different film, but we—it's—it's it's an easy example to make. But us from earlier this year with sure. the downstairs it's and not upstairs. that much different, actually. Yeah. I kind of said to you that yeah. I mean, it's different in as far as like really the good point. ways they go about. But I actually, I, one of the first things I said to you when we left this was that I thought this was a better version of us, yeah. even if they are operating in different modes of reality. And that's probably why I'm thinking that because you did mention it. Yeah, we I, I didn't mean that in the sense ago. that like, oh, no, I no, said I, it. I'm I just not, meant like I agree with you. And I'm, I'm. I'm I guess I'm more saying that I'm, I'm just thinking of that now, and that's probably why I'm thinking of that because of our conversation earlier. But I will say, as I was not a really big fan of that film, I feel like here it's actually super earned with that like literal upstairs-downstairs yeah. divide yeah. and also, too, just the way that this story progresses. I, this is a really fantastic film. Mm-hmm. It's one of those films where... Unlike Ford vs. Ferrari, the more I think about it, the more I talk about it, the more I like it. Yeah. Uh, Gains and reflection. Yeah, where the not where that where I'm just like, you know what? That was kinda stupid. Yeah. Um so I don't know. I kinda rambled on there a little bit, so sorry oh. about that. No, 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 it was it was fine. This is uh this is a this is a very, very, very good film, um that I think anyone should go see. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. And do you want to go or do you want go, me to go? Go ahead. Go okay. Because you wanted to talk about um Oh yeah, that middle scene. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's the hard, I will hard go use on. And yeah, I, to an extent, I agree. By the way, yeah, um, I'll, I'll give an overall impression, which is that I absolutely love this movie. Um, I thought it was fantastic through and through. Um, the cinematography uh, by the DP, and I forget his name, but yeah. um, is yeah. so fucking good. And I, I made the joke earlier in this episode that you know he went from horizontal to vertical from Snowpiercer to this, right? But Snowpiercer, I think, is a very is a good movie, but I think this is a great one. Mm. And personally, I think the visual metaphor of it of the vertical class divide is just so much more potent in this film than it is on the train in Snowpiercer. And I like that movie a lot. Well, sure. Um, but I almost enjoy that more as a popcorn flick, whereas I enjoyed this both as something that's deadly entertaining, but also like I can't stop. Snowpiercer about. has a lot of really good awkward dialogue. It does. It. That's it does. true, it and does. I think maybe that's part of the whole English language, uh, you know, film versus, uh, you know. His. Oh, it's entertaining. Oh yeah, right. but I mean, like doing something in your native tongue versus something that's yeah. like you know whatever. Right, and, and there again, that is a very cosmopolitan cast. Yeah. Um, like one of the main villains, I want to say he's Romanian. I've seen him in some. That's right. Know, yeah, and yeah. But I mean, so it's a lot of people are definitely outside of probably their comfort yeah. zone. But it all kind of works. But know? this, from the first frame, feels authentic in a way that this feels like this is from a world and that uh, is is out there. <laughs> and yeah. um, I 
I absolutely loved it. I love the performances. I love the way that it does work as both a black comedy, but also an extremely engaging drama uh, with a, I would say, a hint of that kind of horror slash thriller element. Because what I loved was that when I was watching the first half, and I actually did not watch the trailer either, which is rare for me because mm-hmm. I don't care about spoilers. So I really was kind of going into this blind that the whole first 40 minutes, I didn't know that there would be that second half, but I also kept waiting for like some kind of axe to drop in some way. Sure. So when the basement was finally revealed, I was just so happy because I'm like, oh, good, we're we're not doing this for nothing, you know, like that there's something literally underneath the floorboards uh, to this entire story. Yes. And um, I once that took off, and I loved the setup, uh, so to speak, the first 40 minutes. But once that was uh, introduced, I just thought this became an exceptional film that was fully delivering on its promise of being both uh, just enthralling, but also way more potent than it first seems um the as i mentioned earlier the cinematography is so great when it comes to depicting uh the rise and fall of these characters within these social systems and the way that they're segregated from each other uh you know you contrast where they live uh the the poor family with the rich family and like some of the uh you know divisions are super obvious with the idea of like when you are at the uh, nice house you know whatever there's grass everywhere you know right, they have point. their own literal space to inhabit but when you're at their the other place you're in this sub basement that's half uh, in the ground, half not, which I think is actually kind of telling because they are technically one degree removed from the couple that lives. Well, the oh, I totally the, agree. The, the, I the thought a lot about who that. Lives in the basement, so to speak, and the yeah. wife who wants him to live there, yeah. so to speak. Um, They're like literally having to deal with people going to pee on their residence. Yes, and right. it's that. It is actually that shot which we see a lot in the movie that is actually kind of uh, hearkening to what their internal conflict is, which is they're always given the view of something up yes of of a place for them to get so of course when someone comes to piss drunk because technically they do live in a not bad place but in a poor place where that's going to be commonplace due to you know who lives there and whatnot but when that obstructs their view of of what they can see that's not only out of reach but also above them that infuriates them because it reminds them of where they actually are and I absolutely love the the way that that's visualized um, and we talked about earlier about uh, that great comic kind of punchline of the visualization of the the mother kicking the woman down the stairs yeah. but that actually does um, hearken to the idea that stairs much better use than escalators <laughs> in us. In this movie, actually become this very, I think, funny but also dark comedic punchline uh, of class mobility, which is that any character that goes up the stairs does it either gracefully or through strength, and any character who goes downstairs either falls in a pratfall-like manner or very disgracefully uh, runs down, (laughs) you know, due to whatever they're chasing or whatever. And and there's just a huge divide between those two movements. Well, and also, I mean... The, our protagonist uh, family uh, continuously just keeps falling down the stairs yes. too, which leads to their demise. Absolutely, twice. Yeah. In the yes. film, not only that, but then a character literally is carrying such a heavy rock that he accidentally yes. drops it 
down the stairs, <laughs> which then is, you can kind of see it as like a, almost inertia right. that because that has fallen down the stairs, he can now, now I know he was going to, but just the visualization of that. I think this is all so pointed and so purposeful that a rewatch of this movie and many rewatches maybe can only really illuminate uh, just how well structured this movie is and uh, everything in the frame. Um, him, him dropping the rock, by the way, yeah. down the stairs and then having that be the object that puts him out, basically. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. I that mean, is like, what if someone took Sisyphus, but then fucking beat him at his own game mm-hmm. and and just cut that short, which I, I absolutely love that so much. Oh, yeah. Um, absolutely. And well, then, and also it alerts. Yeah. It alerts, uh, what's it, um, uh, Gonsei, I True. think is his name. So it's like, if he hadn't done that, the guy might not have had to... Yeah had the little uh, cord ready to strangle him with. Mm-hmm. You know yeah. what I mean? So. But and that's, I think, class-wise, he can't go down those stairs without, or really probably go up or down. I mean, and, True. Uh, I don't mean this literally in every scene or anything like that, but I do think these are kind of pointed visual cues as to uh, how these characters have to inhabit these spaces that they've been assigned, especially the roles uh, or the roles that they make up for themselves. Um mm-hmm. I and mean, then before I pass it off, because those are kind of my initial, because I'm really all over the place as well, because That's I just right. think this movie is so good that there's a million things you could talk about. Sure. But I yeah. will mention that that middle section when the rich oh, yeah. family goes on the trip before they come back abruptly, um, I love that middle passage because that truly is the calm before the storm, before everything's about to really go to hell. Um but it also highlights something that is also, in my opinion, crucial to what makes this movie work, which is the moment that the uh, the poor family, I should really know their names. I'm not the just, Kims? The Kims. Yeah. Otherwise, I'm just a classist asshole as well. Um, but, but the moment the Kims have this house to themselves and they are making full use of it and they got what they wanted and whatnot, mm-hmm. they, I don't think, use this space any better than the family before them. It's not like they look around and they're like, you know, this is kind of excessive, you know, like, (laughs) which it totally is in in retrospect and whatnot. But they start to devolve, I think, into the worst aspects of themselves. When they're in their sub uh, basement, a lot of, even though they're kind of a sniping family, but a lot of what they're doing is trying to help each other. Mm -hmm. Like whether they're all practicing how to fold a cardboard pizza box. You think that they would do that kind of activity in this house. And I don't mean that economically, but just as a family dynamic. No, absolutely not. That's a really good point. Because now they have access to booze and they have access to Mm -hmm. just all these luxuries that they literally cannot afford. And it makes them worse people. And I don't think that this movie is so much of like money corrupts all, but I definitely do think it, uh, does have a stance that, you know what, at the end of the day, <laughs> if you were afforded this, then yeah, you maybe you're not so much bad because you were inherently bad, but because once you step into these roles, then you have new uh, lines to recite and whatnot. And, and I just mm. absolutely love how in that brief snippet, they weren't that much better than the people that they basically believe that they were better than. Mm-hmm. They just weren't given the same chances. And um, I think that middle section is really key to under, not understanding, but appreciating the whole thing because the setup is so well done. The climax is so brilliant in the way it weaves everything together. But without that kind of middle tissue holding it together and making you actually care about the fluidity of these two families and where they are and what they stand for, um, I don't think it would work as well as it does. Because by the end of it, we are... um, I don't think I hate the rich family as much as like I like the 
the poor family. It's not so much that it's such a staggering difference. Right. Uh, there's certainly, a, like we talked about earlier, microaggressions and condescension coming from the higher end to the lower end. But at the end, um, what's funny is that I said to Dan about this, which is that mm-hmm. one of the running affectations of the uh, patriarch of the rich family is the fact that he keeps smelling something, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. it's very much tied to, like, obviously that, you know, there's a They've been invaded, literally, by this family who are of a different class than them. They don't realize that really off the bat. But he swears he smells something that's basically beneath him, right? And and what's funny is that after the first time he notices that, we cut to a scene in which the family, the poor family, is basically trying to discuss what it could possibly be. (laughs) Which, Dan, you had kind of mentioned this, so I don't mean to steal your... Thunder, but you can extrapolate on it, obviously. But that the I think actually this is true, which is that this is possibly psychosomatic on the father's part until the Greek tragedy of it all makes it a reality where their house is literally overrun with shit water. And I'm guessing they didn't really have time to wash it all off because they don't have a functioning bathroom anymore. So when they get to the party... And after he, all the shit uh, is about to hit the fan, he goes and sniffs one last time. And here he's probably actually smelling something because he probably does smell like shit. Yeah. But oh, this yeah. is a fallacy that is, be- yeah, yeah. yeah, that has become true almost through sheer willpower and inertia of the way people treat each other and the way people ignore the problems that are not their own. And then it becomes the downfall of everybody so the dynamic between uh the father uh the two fathers uh is really probably i mean that's that's where the very um loud climax really kicks in because he's just had enough of this shit and he's going to get his satisfaction uh however um that is also for me at least where the line of the movie happens uh, when he tells him you're gonna need to keep doing this shit because I'm paying you extra. Yes. I mean that's just yeah. Just getting Man. getting down to it. That is just clearing all the that bullshit was, away. I yeah. couldn't agree more. That Go, is such a key line to me. Going right forward with exactly what he means of just not any of the you know whatever. It's like I'm paying you more, so dance clown. That is like yep. set up yeah. and punchline because I agree with you in that. I think that that line is what brought him to the line mm-hmm. and then it's the sniffing that makes him cross it mm-hmm. like he was so fed up that maybe this would be the last day he would ever work for him or whatever but then, but then one <laughs> simple sniff because right. it probably could have been anything mm-hmm. uh made him then just walk past it and just fuck it all so oh yeah uh, uh, dan please go into initial thoughts oh, or sure. react to what we were just saying yeah. well uh, for one thing i agree with you about the um about him, that's a really interesting exchange. Now I've seen the movie twice now, and I was really paying attention to that last that part where they're wearing the Indian headdresses, mm-hmm. and he's like, and it's interesting because Mr. Kim is talking to him, and he's like, he seems exhausted, and he's obviously suffered a huge loss, which is he's lost basically all of his earthly belongings, right? Now, uh, and so he's kind of distracted, he's tired, and I don't think he means with any malice, but he's like, so yeah, you you um. I guess, I guess, you know, your wife likes surprises. And he's like, yeah, yeah, she likes surprises. Okay, so anyway, what we're going to do is he's like, and I guess you love your wife. And to 
a park that's like oh man crossing the line you know and park well he's he's also brought it up earlier in the film he had and park has that little moment where he's like uh oh oh, oh, yeah yeah that's fine you know like he was trying to decide whether he was going to take offense or not and like so so park there's this moment he sort of pulls the headdress up over his head a little bit like Mm -hmm. so you can see you know his actual hairline and he's like you know you're being paid for this Mm -hmm. and uh just consider this part of your work for the day and for some reason that line really resonated with me especially the second time because there's something about that phrase where somebody goes you know you're being paid and it's like you know what but Wherefore thou dignity? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, okay, I'm being paid, but does yeah, that mean I literally? Do what? Yeah, yeah, can I? Does that mean I literally have to do anything they want on the clock? Yeah. And I mean, that me, basically sounds like like you're you don't exist. You're actually only here the function of what I need, right? Like when I hear that phrase, for me in particular, it's kind of a trigger. Well, not a trigger, but I mean, it's one where I'm like, okay, well, fuck you then. You know, I, I mm-hmm. get very. For some reason, so you should. Yeah. Right. So, so the film wants you to. Feel. Right, right. But yeah. it's like you know, there's a line by E. E. Cummings where he says, "You know, there is some shit I will not eat," and it's like this <laughs> is some shit he will not eat. Yeah. And you know, and, and, and to his credit, he's still willing to go through with it. He doesn't hate the little kid. You know, he's not like, oh well, you know, yeah, fuck, fuck your five year old kid. He is willing to do it. But it's also kind of like, like you said, you know, maybe this is going to be his last day, mm-hmm. you know, so. Yeah. And I will say really quickly, oh, go ahead. Uh, interestingly enough, juxtaposing that conversation with the first conversation earlier when they first talk about uh, the uh, the father's infidelities, where right. they subtly allude to that and whatnot and how he's like, well, you know, of course I love my wife or whatever. So I like when at the end of all of this, when he says that line and he's like, well, you love your wife. Like you said, I actually think he was more just dazed and confused. And yes. He just actually thought he was trying to give him a pep talk. Like, you love your wife. That's why you're doing all this. And then right. when he says that, it's almost like when he's when uh, the father then retorts like you're being paid. It's right. almost like he's saying, at least in my opinion, like, that is a lie you can't even like afford like it's so weird like he wants him to obviously keep up this facade but like he's basically saying that that is so above what you can comprehend and what you'll ever be able to attain and he's taking it as a personal affront even though that's exactly what he should want as far as someone to keep up this facade of a whatever happy family and whatnot so it's just very creepy how it becomes a double-edged sword sorry to cut off your your initial thoughts Dan but no that's right while I'm remembering this Sure. Nick, you uh, had brought this up pretty much right after we walked out of the theater when we were giving our initial impressions to each other. And uh, you discussed this idea of the divide between the back and the front seat of the car. Yeah. And how the father, um, the head of the household. The park. Yeah. Mr. Park. Yeah, Mr. Park, pardon me, uh, just could not comprehend how he could... Why? Why wouldn't he just stay in the front? I mean, if he's gonna do it, just yeah. in the front. I mean, how yeah. could he come in the back? I mean, ugh. well, and that in right. and of itself is actually a more potent version of the escalator metaphor yeah. in us, because True. in his mind, messages and communication can move in one direction, mm-hmm. but it cannot move the reverse direction. Very true. And, and that is what infuriates him in that moment, and and what makes him stand up to him. Or not stand up to him, but well, put him down. Yeah. <laughs> stand up for what's right. Stand up. Revolu- <laughs> Viva la revolution. <laughs> um, or whatever it is in Korean. 
Um, <laughs> but uh, no, that's very true. Uh, well, and he even says, he's like, why, why did the chauffeur have to do it in the back seat? That's my area. And it's like, well, you know, he's overthinking it. Really so, what it is is the back seat has more room. <laughs> you know, yeah. Not that it even happened. It didn't happen. But if it did, it isn't like, oh, he's, you know, he's soiling your your area. He's not, he's going above his station. It's not like that. It's just, you know, it's just an automobile. It's practical. Yes, exactly. Another, another interesting aspect to think about, at least that I'm thinking about right now, is that do you think the family, when they set these events in motion, obviously they ended up having their intended consequences of the driver being fired or the housekeeper being fired, but do you think they intended them to happen in the way that they did or they thought, oh, we're just going to put pennies in there so they'll think he's having sex on the job, where in reality they're saying, oh, you know, I, I normally wouldn't fire him because, you know, whatever, but he did it in the backseat, so. No, I definitely think, um, I mean, obviously the, the lines that are written are kind of removed from the plot mechanics because yeah. it's like it's operating on two levels as far as one being what moves the narrative forward, the other being what's actually at the thematic heart of what these characters are saying. But no, I definitely pretty much think that this is a Machiavellian. Like, there is no way up for them unless they ride the backs of, like a parasite. Like a parasite. Of, mm -hmm. of who is, because they basically have learned very early on that there is no such thing as upward mobility. Like, mm -hmm. if there is, it's because you got a break somehow mm -hmm. that is probably still entrenched in a... a rigorous class system oh absolutely it's very much like the old school ties and the good old boy club of yeah. you know like oh well i, I mean, was scholarships the like scholarship. yeah, exactly people tout the idea of those kind of things of as being like oh you can give the but like those don't get to mm -hmm. the people who actually need them they get to the people who have the resources to vie for them which right. means that they already have the resources to go to college even if like myself who got scholarships from like institutions as far as like money off tuition or whatever sure, sure. but like i had the resources to go there and to pay an admission fee and to you know sure. whatever which means i probably don't deserve it or whatever but uh it's just one of those things where it's, oh, i mean it's, it's all I mean, put in place there, there's there's way i mean look at look at the fucking tax system that we have right yeah. now holy shit indeed Woo. it's not great we can i'm go with on you a whole nother thing but <laughs> Damn, talk about just mm -hmm. that group of people trying to find any way to give themselves an even bigger break in whatever way necessary. It's like, mm -hmm. oh. oh, yeah. Oh, sorry, Dan, please continue. No, no, it's quite all right. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I was going to say, that was something you and I talked about earlier, Nick, was was the uh, fact that the the um, Kims, the brother and sister, I can't remember their names. Oh, Ki-woo and Ki-jong. Like, they're obviously very talented. I mean, she's really good at manipulating um, graphics, obviously. I mean, considering, you know, she's doing this at, like, what, a library, basically? They make basically. jokes about it. Yeah, and, and <laughs> she's, like, a super good actor. Like, and he, and they're both really good off the cuff. I mean, they're very talented, but it's just they don't have access to this. And like you said, yeah. they don't have entree, and they don't have any kind of upward mobility. I mean, it's not just His that His friend they, tells him that he's a better tutor than he is. <laughs> right. Know? He's like, oh, man, you speak English way better than most of these college pricks I go to school with. I mean, you know, he has a lot of contempt for those guys. He's like, you're, you're like, you're twice as good, if not better, more talented, you know? So I think that's interesting. And, you know, and a lot of it comes down to not just access, but like even knowing it exists, you know, like if you don't have access to like internet, like that's the first thing you see in the movie, right? They're like, they're going around going, uh, I don't have a connection. Oh, you know, okay. You know, where's the hotspot gone? I mean, if you don't have that, <clears throat> 
excuse me, if you don't have that, even just the idea of knowing that a scholarship exists for you, let alone applying for it, is kind of barred to yeah. you. Yeah. So. Also, visually, they only get internet by getting to a higher place. Yes, true. And <laughs> it know. is in the bathroom, but yeah. for whatever that means. Uh, so for me, um, a lot of what you guys said, I'm definitely going to echo. But I mean, for, for me, the first thing uh, is that, that thick-ass front door in the intercom system. Uh, it totally got me thinking of uh, Dogtooth and Ex Machina, yeah. You yeah. Know, which are two other really great films that take place in a largely confined area with a limited amount of characters. So, but it's always like everything's going up and it's going down. It's like when you're going up, I mean, they're going up the street to the driveway. You know what I mean? They're going up through the, I mean, you almost could call it a compound, you mm-hmm. know, because each one of these properties is like its own, you know, little fiefdom. There's no concept of neighbors. No, no, not at all. No, not at all. I mean, the best neighbors are the ones where you're like, oh, yeah, they live over there. We don't know who they are. You know what I mean? But we've got huge fences, you know. But it's like they're always going up and up. Like, um, and, you know, and, and then, then, you know, when they leave, they're going down. Like that scene at the end of the, uh, that montage at the end of uh, Act 2. Where they're like going down the stairs and going down, and then they're in the subway, and then they're going down farther and farther, and then they're finally realizing that oh, this rain that earlier when we were looking out the picture is window now just completely flooding right. all of our residences. Right, because because yeah. the, when they're first sitting there, they're kind of getting you know blotto, and they're they're watching this huge picture window, and the the lightning's going. They're like, oh, it's beautiful. And I was gonna blah, say blah. they get to romanticize. Yeah, because they're, they're offered. Up, they're up there. They're yeah. literally up there, and they're and they're economically up there. And then when they get down to the bottom, they're like, oh, this rain is completely destroying our lives. Mm-hmm. This is our complete, you know. And it's like, I do also think it's interesting. Kiwu and Kijang, they seems like, and the second time I noticed this, they get their best ideas about the scamming the rich family when they're like walking down that huge winding set of stairs, you know, through the garden and through the lawn. And then, because they'll be like, oh, yes. Now, what was her Korean name? I remember her name was Jessica. You know, and it's like, I mean, it, it's really interesting that they, those two get their ideas for how to scam them right well, as they're walking down yeah, before they get to the, the gate. The know? other thing I took away from this is this is not the first time that this has happened <laughs> with them with the family, I don't think. Really? I don't think so. Interesting. I don't, I'm I don't against know. that, actually. That I'm just like, uh, I didn't even think about that. I mean, they were really good at it, I will say that, but I don't know. I mean, I feel like that it was just... I don't know if that it's happened on this scale. I think well, for not, me... Yeah. I think the seeds were always there as far as that's how they got any side job or any Yeah, they'd whatnot. hustle. But I do think this is the, the rise and fall of the one time that they almost touched greatness, basically. Yeah, I, this be. was their But their I, big I agree whale. with you in that. I, this is not like they don't have a bout of creativity it just, it just, put into action um, in it, this moment only. It just feels way too familiar for them that it, I know that, you know, just doing what you have to, and yeah. it sometimes can feel like second nature. But just the idea that it's just like, oh, well, I need to get this person in here and get this right. person in here. It just, it just feels like this I, is they, they're not making any rookie mistakes when no, they're doing this. Absolutely. So right. I, I would say I agree with you in the sense that yeah. I think that's how they've gotten anything in life, whether it's their free internet or their whatever. I think right. the only distinction between what's happening now and what's happened before is that in this case it takes an outsider who comes to them and who gets them through the front door that's the point of that they yeah. are not allowed in there unless someone lets them in yeah. uh, but then they like a parasite use that recommendation and use that as a uh, 
gave a telephone uh, to get everybody else in there. But right. But I do actually kind of I didn't realize kind of. I, but I think what you're saying, though, as far as, like, just how far this back this goes, and that, that's kind of why they have this current setup that they do. Um, but yeah. yeah, it might have been more Penny Andy stuff at the beginning, you know. Um, I, I was reading uh, Trevor Noah's autobiography, uh, Born a Crime. Crime. Yeah, it was really good. And he talks about, um, he has this great quote, he's like, you know, they always say, like, teach a man to fish and he'll eat forever, you know. And he's like, but the thing is, you also got to give the guy a pole. You can't just teach him how to fish <laughs> and then go, all right, good luck. And for him, that was like a computer that he bought uh, from a friend who was leaving the country, you know. And so that computer allowed him to illegally download music, which allowed him to burn CDs, which allowed him to sell them to his classmates, which allowed him to become a DJ, you know. And so that computer was that fishing pole for him. He's like, you know, it's it's not enough to just teach you. You actually have to have that entree. Like, um, uh, yeah. I can't remember the uh, character's name, but it's basically it's um, it's Kiwu's friend, basically. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I agree. Uh, it is interesting. There's a, there was a quote I kept thinking of from, uh, Miller's Crossing, which is my favorite movie. So go mm. figure. <laughs> but there's a part Great where, movie. uh, where he says, uh, you know, I don't blame her. She sees the angle, which is you. And she plays it. She's a grifter, just like her brother. They probably had grifter parents and grifter grandparents. And someday they'll each spawn little grifter kids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, that's pretty perfect. I f- kind of forgot about that I, in, I, in the context well, of that movie. Well, yeah, I mean, but it's so true. It's like yep. the way they do kind of snap into it. It's like they've had to hustle for so long. I mean, I think you're right. They've probably done a lot of this. But like you said, this is like the big whale. This is the mm-hmm. one where they're like, oh, man, we better not screw this up. We're going to have we're going to write a script so that our dad says, follows it directly, you know, perfectly. But I mean, the other the underground stuff is fascinating. I mean, it's interesting. I hadn't really thought about us. Although, I mean, I think I probably liked us more than you guys. Although, I'd have to see it again. I mean, I've only seen it once. But the uh, Guan Sai character, the guy who's basically been living under there for four years, you know, uh, I, I thought that whole thing was fascinating because it's like, you know, you've got <clears throat> uh, Kitaik, who's the um, uh, Mister. Kim, if you will. Mm-hmm. He's like, how can you live in a place like this? And Gwen Sai's like, well, lots of people live in underground, especially if you count, you know, semi-basements. Mm. It's really just a matter of where you're on the food chain. Mm-hmm. So, like, somebody like Kita can be like, oh, well, I'm better than this guy, at least, you know? And, and I also thought it was interesting that Moon Kwong was like, oh, well, many rich houses, you know, here's the quote, many rich houses have secret bunkers because of nuclear war or creditors, <laughs> which to her is like equally catastrophic. It's like, you know, nuclear war from North Korea or just really, really aggressive creditors, <laughs> you know, which I thought was very funny. Hmm. Um, the other thing that I thought was interesting is that the Gwen Sai character sort of made me think of this thing. Uh, are you guys familiar with this Japanese phenomenon? I mean, it's not just Japan, but they have actually a word for it. It's called hikikomori. And it's basically people who, like, won't leave their house or their apartment for, like, months or even years at a time. And it's like a whole generation of people... Uh, like where it's, it's less just, claustrophobia. It's more like they've just dropped Agoraphobia. Out. Yeah. But more just like this is kind of a way of life, so to speak. It's like yeah. there's no point in even trying to get a job, you know, which, I mean, you get it in Japan because there's, you know, there's so many people and so few jobs. And at first I thought, well, it's Japan and Korea. That's a little racist of me. But then I realized, I found out that Bong uh, actually made a short film about Hakiko Mori in, in 2008. So I was like, oh, yeah, nailed it. So... <laughs> 
So I got that going for me, which is nice. Hmm. And then, have you guys ever seen um, the uh, old um, Time Machine movie? The Time Machine from 1960? No. It's like George Pal. Yeah, I've sadly only seen the Guy Pierce. Yeah. That one Samantha Mumba. Yeah, that gives you an idea. Orlando <laughs> Jones, let's not forget oh, Orlando yeah. Jones. Oh, yeah. I actually read that book when I was uh, in elementary school. Some, oh, so you, know the, so you know the basic plot. Basic. Well, it's been a while. So, okay, so you've got, like, you've got the Eloys, mm-hmm. right? They live above ground, and the Morlocks live underground. Yep. And the Eloys look like us, and they, like... You know, they're very, like, fair-skinned and everything. And, you know, they wear, like, these, like, you know, togas and shit. Mm -hmm. And they don't know anything about their history. They don't work. They don't read, et cetera. Sounds pretty great. It does, right? But then you realize the Morlocks operate all the machinery that keeps everything going. You're like, oh, they're like the slaves. Well, actually, the Morlocks are breeding the Eloys to eat. So you show that the Morlocks, well, it is, you know, so the Morlocks are actually the masters. And I I kept thinking about that in this movie. And, you know, Metropolis. They're like the Doozers in Fraggle Rock. Actually, yes. Except I don't know if the Doozers were cannibals. They kind of were in the sense that they made, well, no, they weren't cannibals, but the Fraggles ate their constructions, which is weird because they only made the constructions so that the Fraggles could eat it and they'd have a sense of purpose. Anyway. That's... I had forgotten that they eat the construction. That is the a very uh, that's capitalist show. It uh, is actually, but again, you know, it's like Fritz Lang's Metropolis is totally like that too. Where it's like yeah. you have the people underground. It's all about class, yeah, you know. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, but it's interesting. Like I love that part in the middle of the movie. You know, like okay, so each I, I figured it out. Like each act is like the first. Each act is shorter than the last. So act one is like. 54 minutes, and then the second one's 47, and then the next is 15, and then the last one's like seven, seven minutes. That's like the postscript, if yeah. you will, which is mostly just narration on the part of um, um, uh, Kiwu. Yeah. Uh, which is the only time, actually. It's interesting. It's so seamless. It, I didn't even notice until the second time. I'm like, you know, there wasn't any narration over, you know, over overheard narration until no, the end. But it is diegetic in that it's based on a letter, right? Oh, it's... Pr- yeah, so, exactly. So, I mean, it's not... Um, yeah, it's, it's not like... Uh, God, what was that one movie that just came out in the last couple of years where randomly somebody just starts talking because they clearly had no way to act... Oh, it's going to bug me. I'll figure it out later. Oh, yeah, there is, there is a director that'll do that where it's like it'll be going and you're like, what the hell happened? Like, um, I mean, anyway. like, Tarantino will do it uh, yeah. as a joke when he right. literally takes over the hateful weight to... Uh, <laughs> Which worked a lot better in the theater because it's the roadshow version. So ah, he kind of after the intermission, after the intermission, explains what was been happening or whatever. <laughs> but also, it's just funny to hear a quote unquote storyteller. It's literally very random outside of that. Yeah, right. Um, but no. I was thinking of like a more just bad example of where randomly they they had no idea how to end it, and so then they just had a character start talking to the audience for no reason. Or you almost but, have the opposite in um, adaptation. You know the oh yeah. uh, Spike Jones, yeah. where it's like. It's it's going along, and he's doing all this narration, and then he goes to that screenplay writing class with Brian and Cox. Brian Cox, and he's like, "God help you if you use the internal narrative. Yeah, that's sloppy writing." And then it's and then it's like stops, and yep. you have no more narration. For yep. the rest. I mean, it's absolutely hysterical. It's great. Uh, so anyway, but I do like that middle part where they're, like you said, they're kind of getting blotto, you know, and they're in front of this picture. I mean, this picture window. It's it's basically a wall yeah. of glass. It's gorgeous, and uh, so I, I wrote down the the exchange here. Uh, Kitaike says she's she's talking about the um, Mrs. Park, if you want. He says she's so naive and nice. She's rich but still nice, 
And Chung Sook, his wife, is like, nice because she's rich. <laughs> and Kitaik's like, you know, that's true. Your mom's right. Rich people are na- naive, no resentments, no creases on them. And Chung Sook says, it all gets ironed out. Money is an iron. Those creases all get smoothed out. Which is such a They great... don't have that conversation until they're at that place. Exactly. Literally. I mean, that's it, well, it's kinda... until they have that moment of safety where they're like, okay, we mm-hmm. we, we followed the plan. Yep. We hit all our points. Now let's relax and enjoy ourselves. Yeah. Uh, I, I've got a, a friend of mine, uh, Richard DeVoe, wrote a screenplay uh, a couple of years ago about a painter, uh, Soutine. It was a real guy. Anyway, the screenplay is called Graven Image, but there's a quote in it, which I really liked, where one of the characters says, Money is insulation. The more of it one has, the more silent the world's troubles become. And I think that's, like, so true in this case. Yeah. And you even see it happening to the Kims as they get higher up. They're like, nah, you know, we don't really give a shit about the people. Like, for instance, this uh, uh, Gansai character who's, like, literally living underground. They're like, meh. Yeah, we all got hard problems. You know, things are tough all over, dude. You know well, what I mean? They're very, like, callous towards it. Not only are they, like, insulated uh, in just in general because of that, but you also think of the visual motif of windows mm-hmm. in this movie, which is that you have the guy in the basement who has no air and no <laughs> windows whatsoever. Right. Um, and then, obviously, the semi-basement of the one window uh stretch so to speak and right. then you have an entire house that's just the walls or windows and yeah. it's like you can afford that luxury not literally just in the economical sense of like you can pay for those but also sure. like it's okay to let the sunshine in if you have enough money to drown out the noise of what happens on the other end of you know your your area, what you inhabit. I think every time we're treated to uh, some long shots of their house, Uh uh, not to mention that there's so many pointed references to the architecture. Absolutely. uh, The the architect, I should say, Mm -hmm. of the house, which I think is actually very crucial too because it points out that not only is this obviously visually uh, emblematic of uh, a worldview that they all have because of their status, but it also goes back to almost like passing the buck of like this person created something we just bought it and i think that's kind of uh shall you say uh, i think that's a very common headspace for the rich uh Mm -hmm. which is that you know you either inherit it or you you know you earn it it's like this is just our money this is what we choose to do with it we didn't create what's around us and Um, i think that's at least a tie into that (laughs) Somewhat unrelated, but uh, one of uh, the lines of dialogue late in the film, um, when he's going through the Morse code message from the father, when he's talking about, um, and I thought this was pretty fantastic, actually, uh, how he couldn't figure out why the German people didn't just have beer and sausage, (laughs) that he he was just surprised that, that they did not just have endless amounts of that, because, and I... Just in any in any any story like this where there's any sort of potential for racial classism or oh. or, or anything that this is just doing the same exact thing just yeah. with another group it's the same Absolutely. all over and yeah. not only that but there's the comment in the movie about the uh, the, the teepee or something they're like well I bought it in America 
Oh, yes. Yeah. It Which, sh- so it should, that, that it should it's so weird. That got a big as laugh an American in the theater I was to in. watch. Oh, it got a laugh out of me and Nick, too, for a different yeah. reason. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you think about where we are as Americans, and we're mm. being sold a narrative that, quote unquote, there's a, such a thing as American exceptionalism. However, we're not getting to actually utilize it because <laughs> yes, very true. all of our shit is made somewhere else, which is obviously true to an extent, but not the big picture and not true to a fault or anything like that. Sure. And so the idea that, you know, we can watch this foreign language film, especially about class divide and whatnot, <laughs> right. and then so casually part ingrained into the satire is that this family is looking the other direction and saying, oh, well, it's made in America, mm-hmm. where, you know, it's like we're being sold the exact opposite. And it's like, I, I think that's obviously kind of the fallacy that's being sold to every uh socioeconomical system around the world which sure. is that you know all the faults are somewhere else and all the rich uh, is your own doing and whatnot and you know we're all just trying to be better than the other even though we're all just making the same exact mistakes we're all uh reaping in this the, the same one percent is shall we say gluttoning up to the top and mm-hmm. whatnot and there's no such thing as exceptionalism anywhere I would agree with that. I think that actually is something that's subtly being presented in the movie. I mean, it's more than just something you and I picked up. I think that's something he's Bowen yeah. is really saying, you know. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, and I was just thinking about all the thoughtlessness and the condescension, like you said, the microaggressions. And there's just little stuff like, oh, we'll call you Kevin. You know, and it's like, yeah. well, maybe he wanted to actually have choose his own name, you know. Or, yeah. or you know, like there's, I was telling you about that part where um, in the last act, the third act, I should say, where they're setting up the um, tables around the teepees, you mm-hmm. know. And, um, you know, um, oh, God, what is her name The here? wife. Chung the Sook. mother. Chung Sook is, like, setting it up. And, like, she's, you know, she's, like straining to make the, put these tables up in the in the in the formation mm. in the crane formation that the the that mrs uh park has said and like mr park is like shh be quiet he's sleeping and it's just like all right she's already doing something that's not really in her job description and it's like dude fuck off you know what i yeah. mean or like you know he's always talking about crossing the line or how about that part where she's like where mrs park's like Oh, the sky's, what does it say? Today, the sky's so blue, no pollution, thanks to all that rain yesterday. And it's like, yeah, that <laughs> rain that completely destroyed your servants' life, mm-hmm. you know? Just even the fact- There's no mind. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, but even like. At all. <laughs> but like, even the dude's like company, um, it's like called Another Brick, which to me mm. was like the ultimate condescension to the end user. Because like, Brick is what. I don't know, at least when, when we were working a lot with computers, it'd be like, ah, it's a brick. Meaning, like, it's it's crashed, yeah, I can't get it back, it's a brick. Mm-hmm. And it was just sort of like, yeah, another brick, you know, there you go, buddy. You know, here's your stupid gizmo, yeah. you know. Or like, the opposite end of that spectrum, it could also be a, a reference to the idea that it's just a brick in the wall, mm-hmm. which is... I uh, thought about that, too. You the, know, no, and Floyd. I think it works both ways. No, I agree, very, I agree. Um, and, and it all, this is not special whatsoever, but yet... <laughs> right. Just look the at the balance sheet, and it's like, well, okay, so you're making billions of dollars, and that's it. you're just another brick, right? Exactly. Uh, something that's great about that scene is I feel like there's just a really like small moment where like he's not angry, but also he's just like, "What are you doing here?" Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's crossing the line. Yep. I mean, yeah, it's but but, but he also does isn't rude about it. No, right. But it is like a small. I mean, I think the line was probably the actual office door. Oh yeah. But it was uncomfortable that he got even that close. And, <laughs> yeah, because he's looking at him through the window. Yeah. Remember, he's kind of bowing through the window. He's like, "Oh, you're the guy." Yeah. Who's applied and, to the and, job. and again, it's not to 
the point where he's like going to throw a tantrum or make a scene or anything like that. But at the same time, like he just cannot control himself by being like, mm, yeah. "The fuck you doing here?" Right. Which like, is, you oh, know, you're you're here at my work. Yeah. You know. Yeah. But also, what you just said, Dan, is kind of reminding me though too is that that's another pointed use of the fact that windows at work are way more uncomfortable. Than windows at at the home, you know, right. because at his home he has no real neighbors in sight, and it's his own space. Oh, his whatever. coworkers are there; they but can see this trash say, that he has driving him around. Right, but even exactly. at work, when he may be a CEO or whatever, like he's only technically the only thing that divides them is this "quote unquote" imaginary line, which is mm-hmm. basically what a window is, and True. Uh, And so, for him to have to have that visual cue remind him while he's trying to essentially make money off of everybody who's probably outside that room, <laughs> let alone outside the building, uh, <laughs> yeah, is true. is a little too much to bear. And that's that's where that infuriation. So, um, I've got uh, a comment on something in this film cool. that, that really has very little to do with the actual story and structure of the film, but just like a physical something that I've noticed in uh, some films... Um, that I that I really like when it is shown in a film because I feel like it makes it so much more authentic. Mm-hmm. But yet in modern and really any American film, it is a complete afterthought and almost always part of the story, but then sidelined. Hmm. I mean, that's the idea of food that happens within people's lives. Right. Where I feel like here, um, and again, this isn't really critical to the storyline, but a lot of just the elements of the, whether it's going to the grocery store or preparing that quickly, preparing that meal and having right. to do it exactly right and showing the ingredients. I feel like like you see a film like Tampopo, that's the one I'm thinking oh, of, where like, that's literally yeah. like what the film is about. <laughs> but at the same time, like actually showing this on screen and showing somebody preparing a meal and someone actually eating a meal is like such an afterthought in an actual film because you don't want to have someone's dialogue ruined by the fact that they're chewing or something like that. Oh, yeah. And right. then, but here, I mean, it just feels like talk about preparing, prepare his favorite meal, and you have to know exactly what that is. Right. And, and you should know what it is, and you actually see it being prepared and then consumed uh, later on in the film. I feel like it just adds to the film, even though it's not really adding to the actual story. No, but mm-hmm. it is in the sense that, like, what you're saying, and then also if you contrast that to the fact that before this all happened, what was the family doing for a day job? Folding pizza boxes. They don't even get to work with the food. Right. Yeah. All they get to do is create the little houses that, ha- you know, <laughs> transport it and whatnot. Because right. that's, like, the extent of their... Uh, existence in, in this larger ecosystem. Well, also, too, I do that line is so I don't want to. I don't know if it's condescending, but it is like clearly pointed at one individual, which is the father. Which is like I'm only paying you for three quarters of these boxes. Mm-hmm. Like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. A quarter of these are bad. It's like oh man, well, yeah, I, yeah. Can't, even, can't even fold a box right. Speaking of food, too, though, there is the one scene where that family goes to the buffet. Absolutely. What's interesting about so metaphorical, man. I was gonna say what's interesting (laughs) about that though is that here they are and they're afforded to be able to go there for the first time in a little while at least. And um, it's funny because even in that environment in which it's basically kind of I would say not necessarily a metaphor, but there's hints of in a a socialist regime as far as you just put this much money in. 
and everybody who walks down that line can take however much they want, and that's you right. know that's all that's expected. And yet, from that taste of that, right? Because like they weren't having that for everyday meals or anything like that. But the taste of that, from the time they sit down, they're already pointing fingers at who made the money yep. to get them there because the mom, I think, mm-hmm. or the daughter shuts down the dad and says, "Well, your son made this so that we yeah. can actually." And yeah, the mom is. He says, "Oh, eat up, kids," and she's like, "Chung Sook is like." Pff. You didn't even make any of the money as yeah. your kids, you know? and so it's like even as a as a, it, it almost kind of kind of proves why socialism might not work mm. with the human Intriguing. beings mm-hmm. <laughs> that would have to enact it. I'm not saying I'm against it, sure. but no, because, I like I said, there, like once you get a taste of it, it's hard not to then start drawing up your own divisions. So, mm-hmm. um, point. Definitely something I wanted to make sure we talked about before we uh, got to the end of the episode. The sex scene. Yes. That wasn't it, but we can get there. Okay. For sure. We both have probably a little bit to say about that. We talked vaguely about that. Yeah. Uh, Just about how hot it was. No. Yeah. (laughs) I'm kidding. Sorry. Go on. Man, you know it would get him really hard. I know. Well, anyway. Yeah. So uh, what I would definitely like to hit on, though... Um, is the father's description of having a plan and what his actual plan is. And the fact is that he just never has a plan because it's just not going to work out anyways. And that is just the most cynical, like disappointing thing to, especially to tell your still impressionable children to be like, yeah, you know what? It's never going to work out anyways, so act confident because that's what rich people do. But Right. It's like, how do you make God laugh? Yeah. I mean, that's the myth of upward mobility. You know? How do you yeah. make God laugh, yeah. Nick? How like do you make a plan? There you go. Yeah. <laughs> I'm uh, kicking and screaming, but it's it's a it's a you know it's kind of a, yeah. You know, it's thing. one of those things where it's like the promise of a better tomorrow mm. uh, doesn't actually create one. It just creates you complacent in living in a worse today. Right. There's a lot of stuff you'll put up with if you think, well, I'm only here right now. You know, any day now I'm gonna be a millionaire. You know. Yeah, but uh, I don't know. I, I guess I just feel like. In the family dynamic, it just plays totally differently, at least for me, this idea of of the father not a, a, either not having any answers or at the same time not being able to provide any insight, literally. Because mm-hmm. I feel like the problem is, is that's just a confirmation to his children then that anything he's taught them to this point has been bullshit. Yeah. And I don't know. It's just kind of... True. It, it was just kind of a weird kind of turning point and not in a bad way or anything no, like no, that no. but i feel like it was him just being genuine but i don't know if it i was agree because i don't know if he it was... was him being genuine though i hope it was him just being so fucking fed up no. that he's finally saying what he actually thinks i think i see what you're saying which is that up until that moment he was instilling a form of idealism into his children which sure. is we got to do this and if mm-hmm. we do this then we can get to the next step and and i don't have to tell you what that those steps are because you don't have to worry about it you know i'm the caregiver mm-hmm. and i'm just trying to whatever and then it kind of, by that point, like you said, he's so fed up that that facade has basically broken apart to the point where now not only is he given up on it, because he may have actually given up on it a long time ago, but he's also... Uh, given up on it to his children. Yes, like right. he's letting them in on that secret, so to speak, which is... Has planted a seed. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a far cry from at least trying to get them to, you know, climb up and whatnot. 
Right. No, I, I'm with you. Um, I, I think he's probably at a really desolate moment in his life, too. I mean, mm-hmm. he's basically lost almost everything. But he walks out of there with, like, a box of, like, wet crap, like, photos, maybe. You know, and he, you can tell. I mean, it's a very emotional moment when he's walking out. I oh, mean, sure. He has tears in his eyes. Mm-hmm. And here he is, and he's like, you know, nobody sitting in this gym tonight thought, this morning, I'm going to wake up and tonight I'm going to be sleeping in a gym. But he's like, and we all are sleeping in a gym because we have no control. And I, I think to an extent, he's right in the sense that the poorer you are, the less control you do have. You know, the more things happen to you as yeah. opposed to you making them happen. You the know? movie is not about this at all, but certainly sure. that section of the movie does reinforce what's so terrifying about climate change, sure. which is that. Whatever's going to happen in our lifetime and maybe the lifetime after is is going to happen because there are people who are rich enough to essentially skate by it. Right. You know, whether it's because they can afford a, at that time and then it's come to necessity, a house that can withstand a crazy temperature or whatever, mm-hmm. but they will leave us behind and that's why there is no action made on that front because it's not a concern. They can technically mold their world to fit the world, whereas right. – that's not a viable option for the actual human population. And, and that's what's uh, very disturbing. Well, it was like what I said about my friend Richard's thing where he says money is insulation. And it's like, I mean, they literally yeah. live on the high ground. I mean, yeah. not only are they above them class-wise, but they're actually not going to be affected by floods unless it got so bad it was like Noah's Ark level. You know oh, yeah. I mean? Which is interesting. And then, of course, by that point, I mean, who knows how many people have been killed. Also, um, lost. You know? yeah. when the ma- – um, the time passage in this film is kind of is a little bit weird mm. because I honestly feel like it could have been weeks or months uh, sure. from when the maid returns when her husband has been sitting in the basement without any food or water. Yeah, I know, um, right? and that's. Uh, I mean, I guess it could have only been days, but it does not feel like it no. from when I saw the film. And I'm just like, holy shit, was this just her first opportunity? Like to even just be like, hey, forgot my peaches in the basement. Don't come near them. They're dangerous. Yeah. Don't stay away from me. Tuberculosis. Like, I, I don't know. It just, um, it, God, it just feels like, man, that. I mean, and they show him like he is like on death's doorstep when oh, they get yeah. downstairs. Yeah, he's so. very emaciated. Yeah. Yeah. I know you guys wanted to talk about that sex scene that oh, well, was just uh, hot and spicy. Well, so. it was just so hot. <laughs> no, anyway, uh, but I, one thing I do want to say is okay. one thing I noticed the second time I watched it was you guys were talking about the pizza stuff. There's a part about 30 minutes into the first act where they're starting to make money and they're actually, I think the father has gotten the job and they're trying to figure out how to get the housekeeper out. So that's mm-hmm. like the last part of the plan. Mm-hmm. And there's a part where you see them and they've got all these pizza boxes behind them. And then it pulls out, and you see, oh, they're eating at the restaurant now. Mm -hmm. So it's like, oh, they're making money. They're not folding the fucking pizza boxes, man. They're dining out, which is obviously a novelty to them up to this point. I I thought that was a really nice touch. I don't know. You know what? You know what would have been fucking great? Mm. If, uh, and you'd have to really dig deep to see this, but if they were eating out of just eating out of one of the boxes... And in fact, they only got paid for the boxes that were good, but the right. box that they're eating out is one of the shitty boxes that they still <laughs> use, very well even though been. they only paid them for the good ones. Yeah. Right, because they're like, oh, well, these aren't any good, but we're still going to use oh, them. Oh, hell yeah. we're capitalists, for God damn it. Yeah. Fuck yeah. yeah. Well, more yeah. on that in a minute. But uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> I have something to say about that, too. But anyway, go on. Well, the sex scene, I think, <laughs> is, should be singled out. Um, well, he's because... like, they're talking, and she's like, oh such a pervert he likes to do it in a car and then like 
later, they're literally like, first of all, I said this to you, Nick, the other day. I'm like, they're the only people in the room talking to each other. And they're acting all high and mighty like, oh, oh, my God, I can't believe what a pervert he is. And then later on, it's just the two of them again. And they're role play. She's like, Give, buy me drugs. You know, it's and, like. And he wants her to wear the panties. Because oh, that'll that get him really hard. He found, which somehow means that he's both disgusted but also turned on by it at the same time, which is completely believable and whatnot. I mean, it's so but hypocritical. I it mean, it's shows just, you know. that at its primal, at, at man's most primal state, mm. uh, none of that shit matters. And not only that, but there may even be some weird class envy uh, mm-hmm. in, in in the most fucked up way, which yeah. is that you kind of feel trapped in your own existence and that there's a fantasy in being something other than what you have, which is I mean, you can right. never be that Unless you're role playing, this is this is right. this is somewhat different. But look at slave owners and, and sure, yeah, the way that they operated. Absolutely. I mean, I, it, I don't think that these people are that much different than slave owners. No. as far as the way the uh, economic system has allowed this to happen and for it to be a quote unquote normal thing, right? They may uh, not see themselves as directly exploiting people the way that slave owners. Everybody did, did it, but exactly. But I mean, it, I don't know. Have you guys ever seen any movies by Louis Bunnell, um, like uh, the Exterminating Angel? Uh, I've seen the Exterminating Angel. Uh, like that one's a great example. Diary of a Chambermaid, Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie. Those are all very, uh, from what I understand, class very much and warfare-ish. It's like, like Bunnell considers them basically figures of fun. Like he's flat out like making fun. And I don't think Bong is quite on that level. Like he's actually he doesn't paint them to be villains. No, it's just there's little things like you know they're not saints. You know they're not holy fools. Yeah, it's yeah. like there's that part where like young Gyo, the wife, is like lying about how she's giving um uh what is his name? The the uh uh Kim's son. Uh she's like, Oh, I'm gonna be paying you more than your friend and then you see her and she's taking the bills out. It's like, Yeah, you're you're you know, you're doing this, you know. Or like, you know, uh the husband taking credit for Kitak's idea about hiring uh, the housekeeper from the head on he's like oh you could be the good husband and he's like he doesn't even blink he's like yeah great idea I'll totally do that you know it's not like mm. oh well I don't know it's like you know what I mean so they're they're not they're not like flat out like Buenau where it's like wow these people are just decadent hip- hypocritical okay. idiots you know I mean because a lot of times that's what it looks like but at the same time Buenau was also that way about the lower class you know he would show how like schemy and venal they often were like in uh, Viridiana or um, Nazarene um but he's like, it doesn't, and again, like, Bong doesn't hate those guys, but he looks at them directly. He looks at them with dry eyes, you know? And I, I kept thinking, uh, there's a part where uh, Chung Suk, the mom, says about Ki Jung, the daughter, she goes, if she wanted, she'd be a fucking great con artist. And I'm like, dude, she already is. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what she's doing. Yeah, there's definitely a dissolution there as far as to what they're doing, if it's for the, quote, right reasons, and the, <sighs> to kind of buy right. it the piety that goes along with it. Um, sure. Yeah, that's a great point. To really quickly talk about the sex scene, though. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. Go no, on. Uh, yeah. uh, but that... Let's talk about <laughs> it. Let's talk about... Sex. Let's talk about Parasite After Hours. Ooh. Prime um, time after prime time, baby. That no, sorry. scene is interesting <laughs> to me. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Man. Don't apologize. It's a boner. It's okay. We've all been there. <laughs> um... <laughs> That scene, though, is weird to me in a good way because so at that moment in which they start to engage in that kind of role play foreplay, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, it's 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 interesting because it's almost performative for guests they don't know are over because here's the thing. 
they have decided to initiate this uh, interaction between the two of them while their son is in the backyard, not very far away. I think while... that is definitely played into it. No, no, that's as well. what I mean. Like that's yeah, certainly like the, part. Oh, we of might it. get caught. Oh, exactly. And what is funny about that is that they're they're initiating that while that's happening, while, while not even realizing how close other people are to them. So it's almost like they have this myopic view of who they can affect, which mm-hmm. only extends to their whatever, uh, their family or whatnot, their space that they inhabit. And they don't realize, you know, who's under the table and, and who's literally <laughs> underneath them. And yeah, I feel true. like that entire scene was kind of a good little... Ooh, what does that smell? <laughs> yeah, micro right. moment of that, true, yeah. though. Sure. And not only that, but then the way that they... And I'm obviously probably the person on this podcast that is, I should say, that watches the most uh, sex films, I guess. I think we could all agree that's true. So it's not like I'm in any way against the idea of like role-playing or kink or anything like that. But I think as presented here, it's almost this weird, insidious lie between two people, which is that real human intimacy doesn't seem to enter the equation of their relationship. So it's not so much that they're having fun because they're experiencing something outside of the relationship, but because there's maybe nothing inside of it and that the only way to truly uh, extrapolate any human intimacy is by going outside of it and to do it at the expense of others, whether they know they're present or not. And Mm -hmm. I feel like that scene is uh, pretty great because it's both kind of weirdly, uh, I don't know, not menacing, but just kind Mm. of sick in the way that they go about it because it's also transactional, Mm -hmm. which is comes very easy to these people uh, because it's these people. Yeah, but I agree. No, you're right, though. I said it. I know. Uh, But that, you know, he'll get drugs for her if she wears uh, the The panties uh, for him. But also, obviously, what's getting lost in translation is that's the transaction. And yet they're still trying to fuck. So it's kind of like they're dressing up what quote unquote couples should be doing with what they actually want out of each other. And even sex becomes a commodity that not only can they afford, but that they'll whore out uh, themselves with each other for. Well, you know, and uh, Don Yeek even says when he's in the car, he's like, well, let's call it love. You know, yeah. he's, I mean, he's 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 somewhat utilitarian about it. You know, like I remember driving back from the movie, Heidi and I were talking about it. And she's like, well, you know, on one hand, that's a pretty healthy sexual relationship for a married couple that's been together for a while. And role playing is like a totally right. healthy thing. That's what I was trying to say. I prefaced it by saying it's not I'm not against these actions. It was just that in this case, it does feel like that's like all there is. Yeah. Like you said, there's like a hollow center, mm-hmm. you know. I, I agree with you. Why be themselves if there's technically nobody there? Yeah. You know, present, so right. to speak. Um, should we go into final ratings? Well, I, I have a couple more comments. God damn it, Dan. I'm going to be fast. I Are you? Yes. One is a quote from, uh, it's about the uh, Kims, because it's like, well, you know, we, we look at the Kims, and, you know, they're they're kind of scoundrels. But, mm-hmm. I mean, at the same time, it's those like, well, why rascals. are they? <laughs> those little rapscallions. <laughs> Uh, those, you know, anyway, but one was a quote I kept thinking about when I was watching the other than the Miller's Crossing quote. The other one I was thinking about was this, um, quote from, uh, J.M. Kutzi. Uh, it's a South African novelist. He wrote this book, Disgrace. And he has this quote where he says, uh, he was a man of patience, energy, and resilience. He was a peasant, a man of the country, a plotter and a schemer, and no doubt a liar too, like peasants everywhere. Honest toil and honest cunning. <laughs> and it's like, but why are the Kims the way they are? Why are they 
having to do this undignified thing where they're lying and they're basically doing all this, you know, dirt. And it's like, you know, he's uh, Kim Tyke, uh, Tyke, I should say, says, in an age like ours, when an opening for a security guard attracts 500 university graduates, that's that's pretty sobering. You know, and then you look at like Gung Tsai and Moon Guang, you know, they owe all this money to loan sharks, right? And they have no way of protecting themselves. They have no legal recourse. And a lot of that has to do with, uh, if I could just really quickly say this, uh, South Korea, um, and you and I talked about this a little bit, Nick, but South Korea was like basically a dictatorship until 1988. And so during that time in the 80s, there was a lot of um, globalist uh, experimentation going on there. And they called it the South Korean economic miracle and all that shit. But now we're kind of seeing the fallout from it where the class disparity is getting bigger. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that they had capitalism before government. So the government didn't they didn't have a government to like help protect them from like loan sharks and people who wanted to break their kneecaps. And so there's not a lot of the controls or the things that would keep them safe. You know, the little guarantees like filing for bankruptcy or something as simple as that. Um, and so like, it's interesting because Bong's second movie is called memories of murder and it takes place in 86, 87, which is like the two years before democracy came back to South Korea it's a really great movie. It's a serial killer, true crime movie. Uh, I think you guys would like it a lot. I, I definitely give it like... Neon, the distributor of this movie, uh, Parasite, actually just bought the oh. North American rights to re-release Memories of Murder, because nice. a lot of people have always talked about how good it is, uh, in theaters, and to uh, release it properly, because it's never really been available readily uh, in North America. True, although it's disc. like... It's one of like the biggest hits in the history of South yeah. Korea. Like it, James Dean is also going to be in that. that is Sadly, true. yes. Uh, a, well, they looked right around next to and a they CGI uh, Wookie, <sighs> and and you know Peter Cushing. Yeah. Anyway, but um, so one movie I thought it was Memories of Murder, and the other one I was thinking about was a movie that came out last year called Burning, and it's a movie that oh, I, yeah. I keep asking Nick to watch from the director of Poetry. It is, yeah, Lee Chang. Don't say that in front of Alex. And it also has the same cinematographer as this movie, by the way. So okay, but Burning is a movie I've been trying to get Nick to watch, and he's like, I own it, and I... you're like, no, I'm not going to watch it because I hate South Korean cinema. And I, I just have a personal prejudice, and I'm like, okay, fine, but you'd like it. And you're like, no, I'm yeah. not going to do it. I'm not gonna, I own it, but I'm not going to watch it. I'm not going to listen so. to a white guy <laughs> tell me about South Korean cinema. <laughs> you're right, actually. But anyway, I read this really interesting essay by Phoebe Chen, and she was talking about a scene where the main character, Jong Soo in Burning, is talking to this guy, Ben, who's the dude from... Um, the Walking Dead. I yeah, can't Glenn. Yeah, he's a fantastic uh, actor. Um, I don't know what his name is, but yeah. But he's so good in Bernie. And he's like. Stephen Young? That something like that. Yeah, that sounds right. Stephen Young. He was right. just in Sorry to Bother You, wasn't he? Oh, he was. Yes. As he was the, the union organizer. The, the sign spinner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway. He's like, hey, baby, what's your sign? She's yep. like, yeah, I hear that like once a day. <laughs> anyway. But anyway, so Su is the main character. Asked Ben what he does for a living. After all, he seems only a few years older, but has a Porsche parked outside in a Gangnam apartment <laughs> teeming with sunlight. He says, to put it simply, Ben replies, I play. Nowadays, there's no distinction between working and playing. And uh, uh, Phoebe Chen says, how sweet a dictum of leisure delivered with the pathological ease of one who has never encountered any of the world's infinite discomforts. says, in an interview, writer-director Lee Chang-dong observes the generational decline in economic stability and the disoriented anger of Korean millennials. Some early writings on the film Burning were even titled Project Rage. So he said, this is a story about young people 
and their impotence before a world that pretends simplicity, more convenience, more innovation, but remains a puzzle. So it seems like I've seen several films in the last couple of years coming out of South Korea. I mean, South Korea is obviously in the midst of a huge golden age of, of cinema. I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, not just not just the Vengeance trilogy and stuff, but I mean, oh, yeah. it's just there's so much coming out. But it does seem like I've noticed more and more in the last like three or four years, there's been a lot of about um, economic disparity. And I think Korea is kind of finally reaping the whirlwind from this sort of economic miracle of the 80s. <laughs> so I thought that was kind of interesting that, like I said, Burning the Memories of Murder definitely talk about it more specifically. But this one is kind of like, yeah, this is what's resulted from what happened in those films. You know? yeah. And then the other thing I want to mention is just really fast. Is, no, I, no, mean, you're you know, <laughs> I mean, there's the kind of the Shakespearean tragedy here is the fact that, like, I literally have this written down here. Let's see if I can do this. The fact that all of this bloodshed could have... I, I also like that. <laughs> I like that Dan is just r- literally reading things here, which is totally fine. There are notes. I'm, no, no, I'm, okay, I'm okay, paraphrasing. Okay, God okay. damn it. Okay. But I do like There the, is some memory. After you did that, you had to preface that, oh, I have this written down. I, well, I, like, but this was like literally like, it's like I've got these points and the subpoints no. and subpoints. And then this one's just like one fucking point in all bold, like underlined. And it's like, it's just one sentence. And it's me going, the fact that all this bloodshed could have been awarded if Chung Suk had just said, Yes, you can continue to stay here. Like basically, yeah. nobody would have died. Yeah. If if um, Chung Suk had said to uh, 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 the uh, woman, yeah, the gu- gu- um, previous uh, Moon Guang, mm-hmm. if she had just said, yeah, okay, but she hesitates. She's like, nah, because she feels like she's a little. Oh yeah, better. there's like class disparity yeah, between. She's. I mean, they live in a semi basement, but mm-hmm. it's not a basement. They mm-hmm. live in a semi basement. So there's that kind of like, well, at least I'm Which better than you. Makes her kick even. More kind of heartbreaking because yes. a it's hilarious, like just as a visual. Oh, it is joke. And, and then you're but like, also, oh, geez, technically speaking, that was a long time coming. Which is a nope. You belong down there. Uh, bye oh, bye bye. Yeah. Oh yeah, I mean it's perfectly timed. It's like like I said, it's like a farce where you're like boop. <laughs> she just goes. Well, down it the is because too. it just it is. I mean the music times too. Well, later. it's obviously something that really could only happen that way because of movie magic because right. kicking someone down the stairs just does not flow. Oh, right. No. Yeah. Like that. caught on like the second stair. It's very ugly and unpleasant. Probably people roll down these stairs. Right. I say this, this I say this from personal experience. When I kick people down the stairs, it's ugly and there's a lot it's of brain matter true. and it's just no good. Well, and you, so. you, you gotta, you probably gotta, it, it doesn't just flow is like, and I mean like her leg just like, just like just, pretty flawlessly just moves out to the side and the way that like it almost reminds me a little bit of uh in a the great ending scene of Django Unchained oh when yeah he sh- when he shoots the sister and she just goes flying into yeah, he's off, like, off screen he's like say goodbye to miss whatever yeah 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 I love and, that and scene he shoots her and like literally it looks like <laughs> she's being pulled on a rope out of the yeah it's like yeah. yep um <laughs> I love that part too the man. the awesomeness of the actual kick of sending her down the stairs is she literally just goes into a black hole like she just falls off mm-hmm. into a different universe yep. and goes down the stairs and that's it's just such a great cinematographical look but at the cinematographical look but at the same time it just oh man it's just so fucking funny <laughs> oh it is. And then later on, you're like, oh, she's really fucked up. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so there's the laugh. And then after that, you're like, ooh. 
shit. It's sort of like when they see the rain, and they're like, oh, it's so beautiful. And they're like, oh, it's drowning us, too. Well, and know? what's funny, I think, is when she kicks her, I don't think she means to kill her. Oh, I agree. Yeah. But honestly, I do think that that in and of itself means that that's one of those kind of unconsciousable class actions, which is you don't think it's going to kill someone to put them back down there because, oh, you know, this is all walks of life. In an ecosystem, we all have to serve our place. Right. Technically speaking, you know, the danger of that is far higher the lower well, you go. How about also, point. too, um, the fact that this happens, all of this whole event uh, at the end of the third act happens on a wealthy person's property sure. and then they are off because of self-defense and it's like mm, boy if this happened they would be in jail mm-hmm. uh, if this happened anywhere near their flooded home oh that's a great so. point yeah 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 true final ratings yeah yeah i think so uh i will go really quick yeah is that all right oh yeah i would give this a four and a half out of five i loved it i thought it was fantastic you've, you've made the correct answer I did, I know. Uh, and I just think every element that we've gone over is just uh, superlative. And every part of this movie really works together to make it a stronger whole. And it works on so many different levels. <laughs> uh, level. Yeah. You understand, because there's underground, and then yeah. there's semi-underground, and then the- Dan also became an old Jewish man. Then, yeah, so it was great. <laughs> After I turned 70, I became Jewish at a woman. Zero Mostel. <laughs> um, I was just thinking of the uh, Oh Hello guys, where he's like, I'm oh, neither yeah. Jewish nor a woman, oh. but after I turned 70, I became both. both. <laughs> so, anyway. uh, and I think this movie is fantastic. Um, I feel like if we had another podcast, we could somehow come up with completely different talking points, not necessarily mm-hmm. about which seems to talk about, but just, you know, information to, to graft from it. And I think that's what makes this an ultimately fantastic movie. And yet it never ceases being entertaining. Like, mm-hmm. we talk about it a lot, I think, in this episode. Like, it's a stuffy, intellectual, you know, message piece. But what's great is that it somehow accomplishes that while always being uh, an enthralling character piece as these characters just try to kind of one-up each other and whatnot. So I think it's fantastic. I think it's definitely... I've only seen Snowpiercer, even though I also own The Host and Mother, and I need to watch those two, and Memory of the Murder. Um, So even though this is only my second uh, Bong Joon-ho film, uh, it's definitely my favorite of his, and it will be hard to top as I go back to watch more of his stuff. So, uh, as I was pretty much singing this film's praises earlier, um, I feel like... I'm like on the cusp of going up to a four and a half, but I'm going to stay with my initial rating of four uh, before I, I view this again. I definitely will be checking this out down the road. Even I'm sure this will be a Criterion release. I would have to guess at some point. Could be. Yeah. Um, so you know, maybe someday I'll actually pick up the physical copy of we this. We are now in a new golden era where a Netflix even a movie, Netflix movie can have Roma a, that yeah. was just announced. Anyway. Oh yeah, on Criterion. That's right. Yeah. Looking forward to it. Yeah. Uh, so this this film is beautiful. Like just the and I know that uh, I went back and watched the trailer, so it's definitely a prominent uh, image in the trailer. But the throwing of water slow motion to the urinating man who keeps—I mean—that's just just a beautiful looking shot. But yet at the same time, um, is also quite poignant. Oh, to uh, me, that's going to be one of the iconic shots from the movie. Oh, yeah. I, I, like, I think it's it, al- it already pretty much is for, <laughs> for people who are paying attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's just a lot to like here. This is just a very well-crafted film, uh, a movie that just 
works in so many different facets uh, for anyone who wants to go and just enjoy a piece of cinema, whether it be for laughter or for sorrow or for thought-provoking moments or themes. I mean, there's just a lot here to like and a lot to chew on and a lot of meat on the bone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think that that is, you know, at the same time, too, uh, just the way this film is crafted, where it can weave between different modes and not just be hilarious in the first act and sad in the second and third act. I mean, the, you know, this is not, a, I'm, I don't know why I'm comparing you to this, but a movie like Funny People, which is... Mm. you know pretty hilarious in the first 40 minutes and then it tries to turn into a drama and it's like it's this the Adam Sandler film? uh it is okay, yes yeah. uh and i like that movie i think it's quite good uh but at the same time it never really can decide exactly what it wants oh to yeah there's be. no balance there no and and i think that that is definitely a strength of this film that even in the ultra dramatic scenes there's still time for real life to to poke its head out so this is a very very good film uh and one i will definitely be revisiting someday um and it deserves all of its praise it's gotten Mm -hmm. because it's a uh uh, i wouldn't go as far as saying a masterpiece but it is a wonderful work of art um and i think it definitely deserves uh all of the praise it's been getting so four stars for me for parasite Nice. Uh, yeah, I agree. I mean, the tonal shifts are, are really seamlessly done. Like, Act one is like, you know, it's it's very comedic and it's very fast paced. And then the second act is like, almost like, you know, like a farce where it's like they're just moving from, you know, it all takes place in, you know, a few, basically a couple hours, you know. And then the third act is like, just there's this dread. You're like, man, something's about to happen. I don't know what it is. And it's just this inexorable feeling. And then the postscript, which I didn't really even talk about is like so beautiful and it's a totally and again every one of those tones is totally different you know but they all work really well together somehow just the final uh words of this film are just so long oh i know i mean so long they're never going to be seeing him again (laughs) so probably not well Uh, dan you had mentioned and i'll let you take the wheel here but of a ending of a movie that this reminded you of and i completely yeah. agreed which which one was that oh well, it's it at the end yeah i was writing scribbling my notes after the the credits started rolling but it was it reminded me of that kind of elegiac ending of uh the 25th hour do you remember oh. that one Where, which i think is one of the most beautiful endings to a movie in the last like 25 30 years but it's brian cox and he's sitting there he's driving his son to the prison and he's telling him he's, he's giving him all this like it's like future pacing you know that's what they say in politics like okay you're writing a speech and you're future pacing it's like oh you're gonna do this you're gonna do that you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna have a son you're gonna do this and it felt very much like that and it was very hopeful like that but at the same time it was also like yeah the chances of this happening are pretty slim i mean it was beautiful yeah. and i'm glad it ended that way because it's the does... only thing that keeps both those characters going yeah which, really yeah and which is ironic because that's <laughs> also the same sentiment of what keeps them going in their normal lives as far as the promise of something that can never happen. Right, upward mobility, if you will. I mean, again, it's that kind of... The 25th yeah. Hour is such a good movie. Oh, it it's so good. And Philip Seymour Hoffman, when he realizes what he's done... Oh, Jesus. With, um, Anna Rogue. Paquin. Yeah. Anna pa- yeah. Anna Rogue, just, yes. just the music and the, and the just slow motion and just the look of horror on his face is oh, just... Oh, yeah. Oh, so sad That's up he's there gone. with the two most, like, awkward Philip Seymour Hoffman, like, 
kisses, whatever scenes of that and Boogie Nights. Oh, yeah, yeah. Stupid, stupid. Is that what he says when he's yeah. like, stupid, stupid, stupid. God, I so uh, relate to that guy. Um, we just talked about a film by the director last, Sidney Lumet, uh, the mm. film The Devil Knows Your Dad. That's yeah, Before the Devil Knows Your Dad. Oh, yeah. right, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, that, right. that, boy, that was a decision opening up with a Philip Seymour Hoffman sex scene. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Is with uh, Marissa Tomei. Marissa Tomei. That's yeah. right. You yeah. know, it's funny. They're sitting there. And There's she's, a balance there. And she's kind of going, nah, da, 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 da. And then he starts talking about this, this plan he has. And she's like, ooh, what are you thinking? She starts getting turned on. And it's like, wow, she didn't turn on by this heist idea more than she did by Doink and her husband. You know, which Man, is when I put together that that was his parents in that film, that was like an earth shattering moment oh, for yeah. me. Well, was when like, Toussaint put it together, he was more concerned that that was Aunt May from Spider-Man. <laughs> I was like, well, it's Albert Finney. And we were from, not on yeah, the same page because nope. I was like. You both literally like yeah. almost said, oh, my God, out loud at the same time. Because one of you was paying attention to the plot of the movie, and the other one was just enamored that that was Aunt May from <laughs> the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man. Yes, of course. Not Marissa yes. Tomei. Which, ah, that's why it's even more confusing. she's Aunt May? No. Well, yeah, because... Well, and that led to the argument. I'm like, well, no, yes, she is. We know that. Because we didn't like, know what no. he was talking about, because he wasn't saying which Spider-Man, because yeah. there's two Aunt Mays in there. Yes. And it got... And and then I'm like, did you even catch the fact that this is the first scene that tells you explicitly that these are – because before, you never saw them meet until they meet at the school function. Mm -hmm. And anyway, and he was like, oh, yeah, I caught that. Oh. (laughs) And I'm like, okay. It was confirmation that he did not, but that's okay. Maybe he did. You just – you know, it was just – you know, yeah. but yeah, this will be a test to see if he listened to the Parasite episode. Uh, oh, I, I hope he does. He said uh, it was his favorite film of the year. I know that's why I he think he said would. he liked it more than The Lighthouse, which I, I was surprised know. by. But yeah. Yeah. so yeah, I so anyway, like I said, the tonal shifts were just really brilliantly matched. I didn't even talk about how good the score is. It's like like harpsichord and like mallets. It almost has a Christmassy vibe for the first first part, and then they add theremin. I don't know if you noticed that in the second act, and it's like. It's very odd. It's comical, but it's I also kind of it, menacing. Uh, here and theremin. Ah, here and theremin. Theremin. Or uh, you know, I didn't even talk about like one of the parts that I thought was hilarious that nobody else in the theater did, which is you know maybe says something about me. But it's like that part when uh, it was Gwen Sai he walks out in the garden party and he's like bloodied head and everything, and everybody's looking at the, they're like they don't even notice. And like I don't know for some. Have you guys ever seen the movie I Love You to Death? Yeah, uh, it's great. It's a very funny comedy. But basically, there's it's about Kevin Klein. He keeps getting like his wife keeps trying to kill him, right? Because he's in, uh, he's unfaithful. So like she tries to poison him, but he's like his constitution's so strong. He's like, oh, I just have a stomach ache, and he's this very broad Italian character. Anyway, and then she hires the uh, William Hurt and Keanu Reeves to like basically hitmen to kill him. So they go up to the room while he's recovering from this this poisoning. And they just shoot him in the stomach, like in bed. And then he walks down the stairs, like five minutes later, and he's got this like bullet hole, like right. <laughs> and it's like going out the other side. And he's like, "Oh, we have guests. We should, we should make them some food. We should." Be. And they're like, <laughs> "You know," but it, it had that kind of like, "What do we do now?" Moment where you've got this bloody person, and he's got a knife, and he's about to do some shit. Anyway, so what's your final rating for Paris? I would say four and a half. <laughs> Four and a Me half. Me and Dan Maybe are higher. good enough friends that I can shepherd him. Absolutely. Into the. He's the good shepherd. The final. What do you that, call the fucking? That is not a good movie. Oh, I love the Good Shepherd. What's the? That's fine. We can finish line. 
yeah. the finish line. I was like, what's the opposite of the starting line? <laughs> but it's like, it's not final line. Anyway. <sighs> that movie has such a hard time finding its aim. Good oh Shepherd? My... Oh, yeah. Ooh. I've never seen that. Oh, it is just... It's got a couple scenes I really remember in a good way, I mean, but... Um... And it is a... Mm. It, I would agree, but that film somehow found a way to try to sneak Gabrielle mocked into a drama. Oh, that's right. I forgot about him in that. Uh, I just got Dan back on track. I know, right? So <laughs> four and a half, Alex. and I might go higher later. I might go to a five. Uh, but it, right now it's a four and a half, which is where I have Snowpiercer. So they're neck and neck. But I mean, watching it the second time, man, you're watching it and you're like, wow, this is really perfect. Every yeah. little thing is right in place. Sounds like it's pretty high praise from all of us. Mm-hmm. I would say this is uh, some of the highest combined ratings that we've had in a, in a while. I tell you, watching Indeed. this movie, it was a... Era sight for sore eyes. Ah. <laughs> so if anyone, it was to... love at first parasite. Am I right? Yeah, am I right? Parasite, Ooh. love at first. Oh fuck it. Oh boy. I'm giving you people gold every goddamn night. <laughs> Maybe we won't be inviting Dan back. Oh, is he still here? I deserve that. <laughs> oh. We, we we're we're all not very good at this, so it's fine. Yeah. Well, you guys are a lot better at it than me. Ooh. You've been doing a lot longer. Ooh. Ah, you're just being modest now. Ooh. <laughs> okay, uh, I am. <laughs> Twist my arm. Fine. Uh, if you out there have any thoughts on Parasite, uh, feel free to send them on to us at filmtankshow at gmail.com, or you can also just try to catch up with us on Facebook or Twitter at Film Tank Show. Coming up on our next episode... Uh, we're going to talk about the new Martin Scorsese film, The Irishman. Very much looking forward to that. Uh, hopefully the episode length will not match the runtime of the film. We'll see. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, very much looking forward to talk about the film. And I'm sure we will probably at some point on the episode, again, go back to the Marvel Martin Scorsese (laughs) thing that's going on. As I believe we've so talked hot about right now, it's a tempest in a teacup. You know, we've talked about that. Uh, now that I've mentioned it here, we've talked about say, that on we five consecutive episodes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God we didn't mention it tonight. You though. could have broke the chain. I could, yeah. But now you literally made sure that it's not going to last one more, but two more episodes because of Martin Scorsese next. Yeah, but yet he said he would never break the chain. You don't never break the chain. Yeah, if you don't love me. Uh, yeah. Never mind. I could go on about the problems I have. That's never mind. Go on. It's weird because I will say we're talking about Marvel, but anytime I hear that song now, I think of Guardians 2. So I do too, and I like that. I like it in that film. <laughs> it was actually in two prominent things uh, that same year. It was that and then something else where they used it. And I was like, it reminded me of Country Roads the year before. Where that was God, in that is Alien, Logan Lucky, and oh, the yeah. Kingsman movie all in the same year, which oh, was wow. very weird. And that was in that trailer for that weird Todd Haynes movie, so that's fine. Oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, the one with... Uh, Darkwater, Mark I Ruffalo. Think yeah, Mark Ruffalo. That one, right? Mm-hmm. I believe. I mean, yeah, Maybe one of those not. weird emo slowdown covers, yeah. but yeah. But Alex, I remember you saying that you actually felt that the, the chain in Guardians 2 was really well done. I felt like you said in one of the other podcasts that... He felt that was one of the one me. of the best. Oh, I or maybe it was. Oh, maybe but I'm wrong. What, what, what was that? Well, just the the use of the chain in the climax to Guardians of the Galaxy. Oh, 2. I, I absolutely loved it. Oh, yeah, I thought that was really well. I done. thought that was one of the true, really good parts of that film that I think is somewhat overrated. Mm. Mm. 
but that's okay. Fair enough. A lot of people like it. All right, Marty. Yeah, so that'll be fun coming up on episode 211. Dan, as always, thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. Sorry about the good. long running time. Oh, yeah. That's okay. It's always, hey, you know what? with that theme song, you earned it. Oh, right on. You're right. And you know what? But the offer ends tonight. <laughs> <laughs> this is it. I will Cut say um, <laughs> definitely we'll take a two-hour, 45-minute episode with good content over a hour-and-a-half episode of just saying the same things yeah. over and over again. We're talking about Marvel movies when we're not supposed to. It's very kind. Thank That's you. never happened. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Although, one of my, I, I always say this, one of my favorite episodes is that Suicide Squad episode, and I think it's like three hours. Well, that that was, that's fair. But that There's was, nothing to talk about there. But that so. was like flat-out hilarious. I mean, I remember listening to that, and like I was sitting in a Panera listening to it, and I'm like laughing out loud, and I'm like, well, people oh. think I'm a psychopath. You know? We just rewatched that not too long ago, it and is. that movie is genuinely terrible. It is. It is. It's it's really is. Very, very bad. It's bad. It's not good. Mm-hmm. See, and it's not like, a bad DC movie. It is a bad film. Just all through. Speaking it. of that, uh, I was very much enjoying earlier today at work when I definitely needed to pick me up. And Nick, who has been finding a way <laughs> to enjoy every Godzilla property there is out there, yes. went back and watched the Matthew Broderick version, and oh. which I never watched when I was a kid. So I uh, clearly you are not a fan. <laughs> I you didn't like the Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel type what thing? Is, yeah, that what is so going on? Fucking um, stupid. I I'm out. only like 40 minutes into it because <laughs> oh, I, I'm gonna probably watch it in very elongated sections. But uh, you know, it's so funny because it's like the worst of the Japanese movies still don't really come close to that, and it's so weird to me that that's even. I don't know. It's like he just liked Jurassic Park, and then he tried to make a Godzilla movie, but he because he couldn't make Jurassic Park. I've never really sat down and watched it start to finish, oh, but at least it seems like it could have something that could make me somewhat giggle at some points. That oh, last I think you would enjoy watching it because it's not only a bad movie, but it's a bad movie in like a subgenre that I think you enjoy, yeah. which are these kind of large scope Roland Emmerich, but plus dinosaurs, which I think you're a fan right. of Jurassic Parks yeah. in general. Sure. So there's a lot to like soak in. And no, I'd, I'd, way, I'd way rather watch that than whatever the fuck that last one was. King of the Monsters? Yeah, I thought that was um, super boring. Yeah, I know. The problem is that I agree with you, except for the fact that the more I watch the real franchise, the more I'm starting to realize that that was actually a good Godzilla More movie. faithful. Maybe not a good movie, but... There's a lot there to unpack as as, as a culmination of a franchise's history. As someone who does not yeah, know Which is fair. I everything. mean, I was with you the same, and I fell asleep during it. So <laughs> I'm not necessarily defending it so much as it's a weird two-hander there going on. But the Broderick one has Puff Daddy doing that, like, cashmere rap song, which is awful. So you got that going so, right there. So that must have been right before and the Wallflowers doing trials, Heroes, right? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, I think so. Probably. It was before it became P. Diddy. I don't remember so that much. Like two things then. really quickly, because I don't think we're ever going to cover the 1998 Godzilla movie. Or <laughs> will Maybe not. we? But one... Uh, the ditzy blonde character who is Matthew Broderick's long-lost love from college. Right. That is one of the worst like female characters you could ever conceive of in a film because this is her trajectory hmm. so far in the first 40 minutes, which is that 
her first scene, she's in a newsroom uh, where Harry Shearer <laughs> uh, oh. is the anchor, and he's an egotistical prick, and he's there's a lot of jokes about how he's short, so he doesn't want to sit next to someone who's taller than him on camera or whatever. But anyway. Well, thank um, God they didn't go for the cheap laughs. Oh, of course. Know. But she's introduced as a career girl, and the first thing she does is go up to him and ask if he put in a good word for her to get a promotion, and he's like, oh, yeah, I did, and then do you want to have dinner tonight? And she's like, no, and then he's like, okay, but that's your choice. And then she's like, well, come on, I'm a hardworking girl, and he's like, I don't care. Like, it is almost like a parody, like, in in today's world of what you would think of when you think of these properties that existed before Me Too movement and whatever, and yet there's actually no ounce of real, like, irony whatsoever. uh, You know, you're you're talking—I don't know why I'm just thinking of that era and Matthew Broderick, and I'm immediately thinking of the awkwardness in The Cable Guy Mm -hmm. between just the possessiveness between Jim Carrey and— But that movie was that. At least pointed about that, and like that was kind of the point. The awkwardness, I think. yeah, was a big part like, of that. Film. I'm not saying it yeah. doesn't go too far; that it's not always that funny. But like this was technically like this woman's got to deal with a jerky boss. I'm like, no, 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 that guy actually doesn't deserve a job. And what? But, but sure. I, I get what you're saying as far as it was the '90s were a weird time when that was like. Not more flagrant than like the '60s, but it almost like we were about to reach a point where we were just gonna go f- back to where we were at one point, sure. because I think maybe quote unquote after women's lib or something, there was the period of the '80s, and then we're like, okay, so we gave them what we want. Now it's time to give them back what we wanted in the first place, and there was that right. kind of quid pro quo. <laughs> Indeed, uh, whatever. The other thing I will say about Godzilla 1998 is that it is a weird movie to watch. <laughs> Because it came out two to three years prior yep. to 9-11. Yep. And pretty much everything in that movie, it feels like a 9-11 movie. Yeah. Just, there oh, happens yeah. to be, like everything they talk about, you see the Twin Towers and so many shots where even lightning strikes one of the towers at one point. But the way they are talking, like this movie would not have been written the same way. Oh, no. Literally three hours, three years later. Or three hours later. Or three hours that later. could be too, once they sobered up. Um, you know? And not because, oh, there's so many mentions of the Twin Towers or anything like that. But you just would not write a disaster movie in New York like this anymore. People like Ferris Bueller. Let's have it. <laughs> well, yeah, no, they're like the Chrysler buildings totally destroyed in that yeah. film. And uh, I remember um, uh, Kevin Dunn, the actor, yeah, who yeah. incidentally went to my alma mater, Aurora Central Catholic. So oh, I'm just going to say that right now. Yes, I know. Yeah, we're close. You've been waiting a long time to work that. <laughs> we're tight bros from way back. <sighs> yeah. yeah. No, but anyway. Uh, but now your friendship's done. It Well, now it is because I just heard him on air. And he's like, never mention me on air. D-U-N-N. Oh, Dion. His career was also ruined when he just did all those Transformers movies. Yeah. That's right. He was actually the shining light in those, which is really saying something because even Totoro did a bad job. (laughs) He was better than everybody else. I'll say that. Well, he didn't get peed on by one of the Transformers. Yeah. Totoro wasn't, you know, he's not like Totoro's like, I'm underneath the balls. You know, in the second. That was horrible. Anyway. Anyway, Godzilla 1998 sucks. Okay. It's pretty wretched. So. On that note, again, Dan, thank you very much for joining us, as always. And from Dan, Nick, and myself, Alex Diekman, thank you very much for joining us here on this episode of Film Tank. We'll catch up with you next time. (laughs) 